just make it up as we go along, as we frequently do. <coughs> so, do that. Ready? Okay, key up. Nam the Mastroid. Back to normal then. Yeah. <laughs> the useless pre credit sequence. <laughs> Classified top secret subject is... Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. As we wrap up our look at Hellblazer, what we're calling this one, Farewell Hellblazer. Hellblazer retrospective. We well, we're not, I mean, it's not really a retrospective, is it? A retrospective is covering everything. Which Whereas would take a long time. It would. Um, I'm sure there's a Hellblazer podcast I'm, I'm sure there is a Hellblazer podcast Or if there's not, I'm, I'm not sure we just inspired one. Yeah, somebody could do it, yeah, mm-hmm. that would be great. Ben Rush. Ben could do it, yeah. Well, Ben's busy getting married. Congratulations, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, Hellblazer, Farewell Hellblazer, I think we decided to call this one, didn't we? That's what it will be called, anyway. Farewell, maturely titled Hellblazer. Yeah, Stan DiDio's done a great deal to bring maturity to DC Comics, you know. And then he's going to water down Hellblazer. Yeah, there's, there's... So, there's no middle ground, before, it's either... Before Dan DiDio, Starfire wasn't a little slut from outer space. It's either... Maturity is its own reward. Headshots of watered down Hellblazer. Yes. Violence and gore is what Dan DiDio thinks is the Damn, Michael, it's five year timeline. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Baylor. Dan DiDio. That's been the source. That's been the source of endless in jokes ever since. Even not on the show, hasn't it? Yeah. Whenever, just in the house generally, something happens. Michael doesn't like. It's a five year timeline. <laughs> Because he's from Krypton. Because he's from Krypton. <laughs> oh, dear me. Do we have any preamble this week? Oh, I know what I was going to say. Listener of the show, Aiden M. Mohan. Mm-hmm. Hi, Aiden, if you still listen. Had an article published in back issue 61 or 62. Aiden. The Superman in the Bronze Age issue. Yes, his, his real name's Aiden. Right. He has lots of pseudonyms. Right. Writers do, don't So Aiden and Dan North are two different people. Mm, one of them wears glasses. The other one doesn't. Dan North. Aiden. So they are two different people? No, it's the same person. I thought they were two different people. No, it's the same man. Right, okay. Two minds. And to mess it up, he says his emails with different names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to to make us think we've got more listeners than we actually have. That's that's the most (laughs) elaborate trick we've ever been. Every email we read tonight is from Luke Giaconetti under a different name. They've all got together and they've realised we've got maybe 15 listeners worldwide. They thought, 
let's not let them feel bad. <laughs> let's email them in under different names and make them think they've got at least 28 listeners. And now we're with the two true freaks. They're all being censored by... Uh... By demands, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was saying, he's wrote an issue, an issue, an article in Back Issue magazine. It's very good. Mm-hmm. It's on whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, the Alan Moore two-parter that closed out Superman in the Bronze Age. So it's an excellent article. Well done, Aidan. So that's two people we know who've had Back Issue magazine articles. Yes. Him and Michael Bailey. Uh, also, another thanks to Michael Bailey for supplying me with a copy of said Back Issue magazine when I couldn't get one anywhere. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, emails, first of all, as is the norm. Let's have a look what our lovely listeners have to say. Mm-hmm. Our first email this see week... how many of them are the same person. And see how many of them are the same person under different names. <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Our first email is from Jay Ferguson, and it's called Completely Pointless. Guess we don't have to read it out, then. I think it's totally pointy. Mm. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Hello Jay. Jay. I love it how we did that. Thing. That was almost that was professional, cool charming, yeah. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Almost pro- pod- podcast professionalism. It was. I think that's called <laughs> professionalism. Professionalism. I'm a stranger to the word. So are we. We've only been doing it multi, 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 multi years. I don't know what I'm saying though. <laughs> Welcome again to me talking about stuff you've completely forgotten about. Well, sounds like a great show. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet that yet. Things are still fresh in my head. Mm-hmm. Mainly because I've only listened to them all back recently. Because yeah. you only just finished editing them all. Eventually I'll catch up and then I'll talk about the classic episodes from before I started listening. How can you talk about episodes from before you started listening? Oh, I get what he means. He started listening, but there are episodes from before he started. He's our own show. Very, very good. We approve of that, Jay. Other old episodes. Does that mean we have two shows? Yes. Two episodes go up every Thursday on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The best internet radio network out there. Here's a word from our sponsors. Did you like how I did that? That was very good. I thought that was professional. So, arguably, do we have two shows? No, we have one show. But, but one's like, an old one, one's a new one. It's like when you used to watch telly. HKC like, Gold. Yeah, yes. Or plus one. Star Trek was on. Yeah. And then Star Trek The Next Generation was on. But it's not... Actually, that is two shows, yeah, it is. isn't it? So that completely negates my argument. All right. So it's no. like... Well, that's all... All the season stuff, we, we don't do that anymore. Right, okay. So seasons one through five... Right. It was our little five-year mission that okay. took two years. Right. Because we're dead good. Oh, okay. Uh, and now we're on volume two. Right. Is that... And the other three years? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that what we'll do next year, January next year, will become volume three. And right. Et cetera, et cetera. So every year so, is a volume. Yeah, so that's what we're going to do now. Oh, okay. We're not actually numbering them properly anymore. So you know, people can listen to them in any order they want to. And I know that that will really mess up John H. Wilson. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> if we don't number him, because he's a bit OCD, that'll just freak him out. CDO, the order it's supposed to be in. Yeah. <laughs> I f***ed <laughs> up that asked her today in the queue. Uh-huh. I said that to her and she took a minute before she got it. And then she elbowed me in the ribs and said, you're not funny. <laughs> I actually think I'm very funny. You can be. I look in the mirror quite often and think, what a <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we've completely gone off the track of Jay's email. So I do apologise, Jay, but come on, let's be honest. If you're emailing into this show, by now you expect this. Yeah. So In fact, I think our listeners would be disappointed if we didn't interrupt their they'd, email. They'd, they'd be disappointed if we read an email through from start to finish yeah. and didn't go off on a tangent. One day we should do that we should. to see if we can do it <laughs> more than if anything. We can have a record. Yeah. 
Andrew, you were talking about how you hadn't read much Wonder Woman. Jay continued. Wonder Woman! And I must recommend you check out Gail Simone's run, which is truly fun. And I was quite sad when it got took over by Straczynski's run that he didn't even bother to finish. I'm shocked yeah. by that. Shocked that Straczynski didn't finish his own story. Yeah, I was reading Superman Earth 1 Volume 2. And I was kind of let down when the... Uh, the <laughs> but halfway through it didn't change yeah, to another writer. white pages. <laughs> I thought... Oh, yours was funnier than where I went. Yeah. Very good. Have you heard what Chris Robeson said recently? No. Chris Robeson took over Grounded. Yeah, from when Chris it was better. Do you remember? And it became better, yes. yeah. And um, there was a wonderfully funny tweet from him where he's on about Superman Earth... Is it Earth 1 or Earth 2? Earth 1. Earth 1 Volume 2. Yeah. You know the bit with the guns that we, we yeah. laughed at? We mocked it and yeah. laughed at it because we thought it was funny, but I, I think it's there to set up volume three. Mm. But he said something like, this scene, why is this Nimrod writing Superman and Mark Wade isn't? That's yeah. everything that's wrong with DC Comics right there. And I <laughs> 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 oh, that was hysterical. And then he put at the end, one day I will post the what I laughably refer to as an outline that he left me for the six issues. Yeah. He still gets half my royalty checks, though. <laughs> so Robeson's not bitter about that. But to be fair, Grounded got good when he started writing it. Yeah, so fair play to the man. Once again, sorry, steamrolled it over Jay's email, I do apologise. Uh, no, I've not read a lot of Wonder Woman. I've read John Byrne's run, I've read George Perez's run. That's pretty much it. I fancy Woman. reading the Terry Dodson one, who is Wonder Woman? She's Diana Prince. Or is she? Is it, oh, is it like a who is Donna Troy kind of thing? Some kind of conspiracy thing. Yeah. Is it? Is it not just explaining... Well, I don't know. I've not read it, right. but I want to. Okay, fair enough. It's got lovely art, Jay continues, and great stories. And if you don't want to take that on faith, the first story, The Circle, involves Wonder Woman leading an army of gorillas against Nazis who invaded Paradise Island. Does it get much better than that? That's, that sounds <laughs> pretty cool, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> In the Peter David spotlight, when you read the Kurt monologue from Star Trek... As much as you may have been insulted for your Shatner impression, I actually teared up at your dramatic reading. I want to know who's insulting my Shatner impression. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. That Yourself? Was... Well, yes. <laughs> okay. Actually, thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. This may have been more to do with David's writing than your delivery. Oh. 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 He had to dig that in. Oh, you know, he was doing so well. <laughs> But it was still incredibly moving. It is amazing how a jokey a writer as David is can still drag such pathos out of a thing like Red Shirts. Andrew, I agree with you 100% on war stories. Those books are criminally underrated. Especially Johann's Tiger, the one about the Germans. It was amazing in that it actually made you feel sympathy for characters that are Nazis. That's an accomplishment in any case, but the end is heart-wrenching. But enough about Nazis. No, never. Never enough about Nazis. Nazis, I hate these guys. Uh, Jay continues, the thing where you were suggesting that Levitz was the editor that wanted to shut down Ennis after reading 17 inches of Preacher. Levitz has always stuck me as someone who pushed the boundaries of what can be in a mainstream book during his time's writing, and that he would understand what Garth was doing, even if he never wanted to do it himself. But that just might be my love of old Paul speaking rather than reason. Who knows? Um, I didn't know that it was Paul Levitz, so it may not be Paul Levitz. Okay. But it seems to me it was Paul Levitz who got the boys canned. Yeah. So Dandy Dio wasn't at Marvel when Preacher at Marvel DC. DC when Preacher was coming out yeah. and Levitz was. And it strikes me Jeanette Kahn wasn't at DC when the boys was axed. Yeah. So he's the only high muckety muck left. 
So by process of elimination, I thought that it was him. But I could be wrong. That was just guesswork on my part. As to the John Wayne film The Conqueror, continues Jay, I have no better answer as to whether the finished product was any good, but apparently it was filmed in a desert previously used for atomic testing, and the radiation led to the cancer that claimed his life. So, in that way at least, it was a pretty god-awful film. <laughs> as much as I might love Morrison and Quitley, I can't cotton on to the spotlight on Alex Ross, as while I love his work on Justice with Dougie Braithwaite, when he pencils his own work, despite how it can look pretty at times, it's as stiff and dull as dirt. You're welcome to your opinions, but... Oh boy, no matter how much work he puts into each page, and it's a lot, it always feels awkward, stilted and posed, and I can't get behind that. Listening yeah. to you talking... Go on. I kind of agree with that. What, because he's painting from life, everything looks a bit stiff? Yeah. But Justice but didn't. I can get past that, because... You just think it's awesome? Photos are stiff, in a sense. I know, but sequential storytelling shouldn't be stiff. I suppose. But I was reading Supercards last night, and it was up to... Um, the Grant Morrison novel. Yeah, and it was up to Kingdom Come. And it's, he describes Marvels as Alex Ross's warming up to Kingdom Come. Why, is Alex Ross more of a DC kid? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, his art skills are more stiff in, King, in Justice and the Kingdom Come. Mm. So, like, just, uh, Marvels was a warm-up. So I see Kingdom Come as, like, a warm-up to Justice. Because his art's a lot more cleaner and smoother than that. Is that nothing to do with the penciler, though? No, it's the paint. Right. Okay. But I still... I need to finish reading Justice. I enjoyed the two that I read. Whilst it can be stiff, sometimes it can seem very loose as well. Mm. Like in the mythology story we did, the short one. Yeah. That was... The Batman Superman one. Yeah. I felt that wasn't stiff at all. Oh, no, no. The artwork was the least of that story's problem. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I, I agree that it can be stiff, but I think it's improved and it's a lot more loose now still draws woman Wonder Woman look like a man though doesn't he I suppose <laughs> he's a man baby except for one painting in mythology yeah yeah fair enough um Jay's email continues and I can find out where he's up listening. to listening to you talk about getting mini Morrison comics with Doctor Who and a talking penguin in your Weetabix makes me sad I never got cool stuff in my Weetabix. <laughs> Makes me sad. I want Minnie Morrison. Come- when I was a kid, that yeah. wasn't the only cool stuff you got in Weetabix. You got... Weetabix. Well, yes. <laughs> in addition to Weetabix, <laughs> you got little cards yeah. that you could stand up. Mm. And I had a complete set of Star Trek The Motion Picture ones from Weetabix. Yeah. And Doctor Who ones. Mm. I had the giant robot. You know, yeah. the, from the the, the, the Tom Baker one. Yeah. It's the robot. <laughs> the very first one. We don't get any Weetabix anymore. No. To us, Weetabix is adult you, cereal. You, you, don't get any you got them inside and you cut them out, like the little mini comics. That's enough. It was brilliant. Weetabix is like adult cereal now. Yeah. When, when I was a kid, it was you got Doctor Who stand-up cards and Star Trek stand-up cards with Weetabix. It's brilliant. So, yes, Weetabix were cool when I was a kid. <laughs> As far as Warren Ellis being crap at writing superheroes, I will put up Next Wave as an example contrary to that. He certainly takes the b- but if you can't enjoy Next Wave, I feel very sorry for you. Come on, it's loads of fun. Never read it. <laughs> oh, I've read Lots of people have told me to read it, though. I've read some Next Wave. Is it good? No, well, the only Next Wave I've read is in um, Marvel Zombies vs. Army of Darkness, yeah. where they're running away. And then the Next Wave show up, and it's a big climatic posy entrance like don't fear next wave is here and then the very next panel they all get killed by zombies excellent I don't have to read it now but I thought thanks it was, for that I thought that was hilarious uh, I don't think Warren Ellis is crap at writing superheroes I think you're mixing up with what I said about Garth Ennis I think they're very similar when it comes to superheroes I think Warren Ellis is exceptionally good at it 
but his contempt mm. for them and for you as a reader of them just drips from every page. He's an Alan Moore type writer. The amount of times Warren Ellis has said he's going to quit superhero comics but then gone back to do Secret Avengers or... Well, he's just wrote a very highly received and highly regarded novel about a New York cop, so mm. which I was tempted to read. Yeah. As long as he, he reigns in... He's, sometimes he's a bit too cynical for me, Warren Ellis. But yeah. then... He'll deliver some heart-rending, really lovely story, and you're like, "Is this the same guy?" Yeah. So I'm, I, I, I like his work. I sometimes feel like I'm being slagged off by him for liking, liking what he's, what he's writing. writing. Yeah. But I don't think he's bad at it by any means. Cheers, email carries on. Longbow Hunters is gorgeous art-wise, and I think it's interesting to see how it goes. But as a huge Black Canary fan, I can't help but be disgusted by their, how they treat her in it. Although I probably feel the same about any character, male or female, being treated that way. It feels like the Killing Joke in that way. It just makes me feel dirty. And it wasn't followed up with the character growth that came from Killing Joke. I think you've certainly hit on something in that Wolfman is a hack thing that came out of the discussions of the creation of Nightwing, and how much of that was clearly ripped off of other things. And you'll notice his other magnum opus, Tomb of Dracula, stars a public domain character who's actually one of the greatest fictional characters. Makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, I don't think Wolfman's a hack. Yeah. Uh, our argument with that was we didn't see how him and Perez could get credited as the creator of Nightwing. I we, saw it, but I, I thought that was a bit dubious. Mm. How do you get? How do you create something that already exists? Well, didn't we decide that they created Dick Grayson? They as created Nightwing. Dick Grayson as Nightwing. Yeah, but Dick so Grayson we tried existed to leave it though because we could have decided before, yeah. and the character of Nightwing existed before. Yeah. So all they did was marry together two already existing concepts. That's not creation, surely. Is it? Don't know. I suppose if it read alchemized by see if I took a character who had been long since forgotten from Marvel like say Hobie Brown who yeah. was um, the Prowler in 60s Spider-Man comics yeah. and I wrote a comic book sanctioned by Marvel fully, fully sanctioned by the Marvel Corporation mm -hmm. in which I got him renamed as a hero for hire yeah have I created a new character though no see so, okay. before we have lots of blank space and we get into that argument again, we'll wrap up Jay's email. Speaking of characters that don't have a clear creator, whilst talking about Venom, you rattle off a half dozen people who brought elements to the character and didn't mention Jim Shooter, who wrote the first chronological appearance of the black costume. It's all bloody confusing, isn't it? It is very. Um, my argument as to why Jim Shooter wouldn't be credited with that... Although he did come up with a couple of... He, obviously, it was he who said, let's give Spider-Man a new costume. But he didn't create... That. And that's as far as it went. Yeah. Zek and Rick Leonardi designed the costume, mm -hmm. and then David Michelini turned him into Venom. Yeah. But Todd McFarlane drew Venom, and that's what everybody thinks of as Venom. Mm. So it, that's... The Venom thing is all very confusing, even though McFarlane says he created it, which is crap. And as far as my birthday, it was lovely. Got me the Flash Chronicles... Some Captain Marvel, some X-23, and a nice t-shirt with an Adam Hughes drawing of a flying jade on it. And I had an amazing birthday party with friends. So I think I did all right. Hope Michael had him a lovely birthday back in the past. And with how far back I'm in listening, there's probably another one coming up soon. So I hope he enjoys that too. Thank you. Jay Ferguson. 
P.S. Just heard the bit in the second Maximum Carnage episode with you two slagging off early image, and you're mostly right. <laughs> Savage Dragon holds up great, even though it's a mite silly. It is on purpose, and quite frankly, most of Kirkman's writing style is massively influenced by Eric Larson's writing on the dragon. Though to be fair, Larson certainly takes his cues from Clermont, Levitt, Wolfman, and David. But anyhow, you two are doing a bang up job with the show, and I hope you enjoy these silly electronic messages a fraction as much as I do your lovely program. We enjoy your silly electronic messages. Yeah. We like more silly electronic messages. Mm-hmm. We, we love them all. We can't read them all. Yes, that's very true. This is your part of the show. Yeah. We, we, uh, all we do is read. Fourth world breaking earth. Yeah, it's the best part of the show, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It doesn't require any work. <laughs> Our next email, Avengers vs. X-Men are one. Oh, sorry. Avengers vs. X-Men 1 are been a long time emailing, which is from Bill Robinson. Hi, Sounds Bill. Like a country song. Been a long time listening. <laughs> Down on the trail. <laughs> but it's been a long time since we emailed in, and I got nothing to say. Been at the crossroad when I was emailing. Snip notes, snip notes. Got the devil on my laptop. <laughs> Hello from Florida again, approximately two hours west of Scott Garden. <laughs> Hello, Scott. Hello. Hello, Bill. Hello. Nice to hear from you again. I have been remiss in my emailing says Bill. Last time I contacted you I was running across a rooftop trying to escape the antimatter wall of rain back in October. Anyway, this year I've decided to keep up with contacting you guys. I just finished listening to A vs X1 so actually I'm still a little behind as part 2 has just come out and I haven't listened yet. Wonderful choice of using ABBA in the opening. <laughs> I have to hide my enjoyment of ABBA here in the States. Some may try to take my man card away. If you're using ABBA just as a parody for Demands Corps and don't actually like them, well I feel a bit foolish then. Bill, <laughs> the fact that we actually have ABBA to use. Yes, yeah. if you liked it, we like that you liked it, <laughs> and you like it anyway. I'm, I'm not. I'm not averse to a bit of ABBA. Am I, love? No. There you go. Well, what ABBA track do you like, Anya? I don't know. You watch Mamma Mia all the time. Not all the time. Let me go. Be above. That's Queen. <laughs> That's not ABBA. No, but. See, I, I got them because of the lyrics. Of... <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh, by the way, the Italians used to use the lira of the currency. Of course they did. Mm. God, we're stupid. But they signed awesome. up for that foolish euro, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh idiots. <laughs> uh, I guess they use the euro now, though. Nobody uses the euro at the minute, Bill. <laughs> it's in the toilet, dude. When I was in the Navy, I was in Italy on a few occasions. One of the most memorable times was when I was trying to use a phone to call America. In the middle of the call to my girlfriend, future wife, someone tapped me on the shoulder. I turned to see a policeman holding a machine gun saying, Telefono! Telefono! There's another accent to my repertoire, Italian. Telefono! It's a me, a policeman. It's a me, a policeman. Telefono! Would you like a pizza? Machine gun. Stereotypes are great, aren't they? God, we're going through Italian hell. <laughs> I told my girlfriend, I have to go. There's a man with a gun that needs to use the phone. <laughs> what do you say in a situation like that? <laughs> I'd give him the phone, wouldn't you? To be honest with you. Needless to say, she had a few nervous minutes waiting for me to find another phone and call her back. 
My second run-in with the Italian police, or guards, was in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. You're not allowed to videotape the Sistine Chapel or use flash photography. I understand the flashes because it may damage the frescoes on the ceiling and walls. I was with six of my mates in the Navy and they surrounded me in a circle. We moved through the whole length of the chapel with me in the centre with my camera turned upwards so I could video the ceiling. I imagine it looked a bit silly as seven people moved in around like me like a flock of sheep. Anyway, I wasn't using any type of harsh light to record, so I don't think I was damaging anything. I think they just wanted me to buy one of their own $30 videos of it. So we finally get to the other end, and I got greedy and wanted a shot of one of the end walls, and no sooner had I had the camera up than a guard steps into frame trying to grab the camera, saying, No video! No video! <laughs> was that a good impression of the Italian accent? <laughs> Did you know that my fans actually didn't paint it? Did it not? No. Did you just order people? Because he was at that point of fame. Mm. He just drew, drew it and then got his lackeys to paint it. Fair enough. Dick Giordano used to do the same thing, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. gets his, his team to... His lackeys. To ink stuff, yeah. Well, it looks like I haven't said anything about comics. No, you haven't, Bill. But, but you humoured us in. We were, we, were, we were tickled yeah. by your email anyway. And you inspired a new, uh, a new accent. And you, yeah, and you inspired a new impression. Yeah. So for that alone, we, we thank you for your email. Actually, I have to go, so I will save up after I hear part two and email back. Bill Robinson. P.S. Good thing the Italians didn't have herbals to take back my camera. <laughs> Dominic Santini was Italian. Was he? I believe he was. Yeah. Thanks for that, Bill. You, you amused us, even though you didn't actually mention comics. <laughs> Which, following up from Charlie Niemeyer's email last week. Hi, Charlie. Yeah. It's becoming a running pattern, isn't it? Just email in with your problems. Yeah, we're just like a forum. Yeah. Random thoughts, email in. <laughs> Hi, J. David Wheater. I want an email from Darkside, dude. From Darkside? Dave will get that. Oh, the Christmas show. Yeah. You terrified us all. <laughs> yeah. Should we get out of bed? What was that I was saying in bed? I was listening to it on the iPod doc while I was doing me exercise yeah. stuff, me cardiovascular, and Michael was freaked out by the voice of Darkside. Well, I, I would get terrified if, if you wake up to that. I wasn't terrified. Darkseid seems like a pretty pretty mellow guy. You didn't wake up to it. That's true. That's very true. I don't like waking up to Darkseid. <laughs> Our next email, Avengers vs. X-Men Part 1. Oops. <clears throat> it's not the microphone over. It comes from Chris Keith. Hi, Chris. Hello, mighty Leylands. Hello, Chris. I apologise for the delay. All these people apologising for not emailing in. You don't have to. You know, you don't have to apologise. We'd appreciate it. We appreciate when you do email in, but we recognise that real life does occasionally get in the way mm-hmm. of, of, of dropping us a quick email. Christmas and New Year's involved way too much chaos to allow me to sit down and write for a second. I just finished part two of Avengers vs. X-Men, but here are my thoughts on part one, two, hopefully to follow in the next day or so. Avengers vs. X-Men. I've been a die-hard Avengers fan for years, even reading the entire early run through various means, CBR, etc., since I started collecting the Roger Stern run with 262, Submariner and Hercules fighting on the cover. Yeah, that won't make you buy. That's a great issue, mm. Submariner and Hercules fighting. I have all of the Bendis run, and while, yeah, okay, some of it's not great and a little more talky than necessary, I enjoy it. However, it has run its course, and by the time I'm writing this, Hickman is on to issue two. As for the X-Men, wow, I haven't been actively collecting since a little after Morrison. Yeah, Michael, I like the Morrison run. I even like some of the awful Quitley art. I really liked how he portrayed Logan, and I wanted to stay on board after that run, but I just lost interest. That and the fact that Uncanny had some anime-style artist at that time who gave everyone a pelican nose, read the Chuck Austin run. You know, don't. It's not that good. 
couldn't get back into it, and having 50 Xbox out every month didn't help at all. Schism drew me back in, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out why Scott Summers was completely different than he'd been portrayed for, oh, 30 years. Logan as a schoolmaster? Okay, next two. It was a joke that he taught art. You can't have him heading up a school whilst wearing yellow spandex. Just ridiculous. Okay, the book itself, I noted a few quirky things that I'll mention because they warrant a giggle. Number one, the muscular build of Tony Stark and Scott Summers. Go back and read Iron Man around issues 215, 250. Any time prior to his dying when he was creating the War Machine armour, and Tony easily weighed 230, 240 pounds, based on the way he was drawn. I'll give it to the writers that the neural heart he wore after Armour Wars 2 would have led to some substantial weight loss. <laughs> According to him losing weight, and he later gained it back when Kurt Busiek was writing the book. It is varied, and now the artist must be under a strict requirement to make Tony start the exact same size as Robert Downey Jr. Scott Summers, however, up until X Factory, weighed in at about a whopping 180 pounds. X Factor, especially around the Extinction Agenda, he was pushing 240, about Captain America size, sea fight with Alex Summers in that story arc. X Men Schism, about 180, 190. By the end of X Men vs. Avengers, he's the size of Peter Parker, before the spider bite. I know, artist interpretations, but damn, some consistency, please. Well, they always used to call him Slim Summers. Yeah. The implication being he was quite quite the thin man. Mm. But it went through a period where everyone had to be roided up, didn't it? Yeah. In X-Men comics. Two, this is a spoiler. uh, Known as the 90s. (laughs) This is a spoiler, so if you haven't read the entire book, please skip over this part. Well, we've read it now because we've covered it. Yeah. So if you've not listened to Avengers vs. X-Men 3 and you don't want it spoiled, go back and listen to that episode and then come back. Okay, Charles Xavier is no more at the end of the story, which of course means that he'll be resurrected sometimes in 2014 to coincide with a big crossover that also coincides with the new X-Men First Class movie. You know, because Marvel never does things like that. Isn't it going to be called X-Men Second Class? No, it's going to be called X-Men Days of Future Past. Oh, yeah. They're adapting Days of Future Past. Yeah. Which is moderately exciting. Mm. I bet they botch it. Probably. If you have perused all new X-Men 5, Cyclops references that they have a new school for mutants. The Xavier school for mutants. Because when they recruit students and the kids ask, Who's Charles Xavier? Cyclops can answer, Oh, just someone I murdered. But don't worry, I like you. No one skips class at the new Xavier's. (laughs) Erwolf. What is it about Erwolf this week? (laughs) You can't mention Erwolf on the show without playing the theme tune. Unless, of course, Stephen Lacey has placed contractual restrictions on its use. I don't think he has. I think we can play the Oval theme if we want to. Mm-hmm. Any excuse to play the Oval theme. Do you need an excuse? No. <laughs> Romita Jr. My bias is going to jump in here, but your discussion of Romita made me smile. I love John Jr.'s art and I loved it in this book. Yes, the noses are funky. Yes, all the women look like Murray Jane, but it's Thor. Wow. Cap. Wow. The only time I didn't enjoy this most recent reboot of the Avengers where the art was just too messy. Otherwise, I enjoy his stuff. One of these days, I need to make it to Comic-Con to have him sign one of his Nascenti-written Daredevil books, or as I like to call them, the book where the art makes you tolerate the crappy writing. (laughs) Thanks for ruining Green Arrow and Catwoman, Anne. Well, Green Arrow is now under the pen of Jeff Lemire, isn't it? It is. Looking forward to that. So, Civil War coverage. Yes, please. God. <laughs> yeah, you brought it up. I, di- I don't know if I could read it again, Chris, in all honesty. I really don't know if I could it's, get it's through it again. It's the type of book where if there's a day where I'm not doing anything, I think, you know what? Let's read a Mark Miller comic. And you read Civil War? Yeah. That. If. Like Old Man Logan. If Old Man Logan's good. So Civil War. No, it is. <laughs> I like Civil War. Alright, if we do Civil War, we're doing it in one show. Alright. I'm not torturing myself through more of that than I have to. 
So maybe that'd be a double length summer special or something, yeah. where I just sit there <laughs> banging my head against the table, going, "Who is this pretending to be Tony Stark?" Ow! <laughs> Very therapeutic. Very painful. <laughs> um, Chris's email continues. Stuart Ummerman. Okay. Minimum. Suitably. Funny as this. I wanted to include this one here because everyone keeps getting the guy's name wrong in pronunciation. And then I realised it's not Imomen, it's Imonen. So I'll shut up. But then I thought, why not make fun of other mispronunciations from other shows that were more overt? By overt, I mean adding letters that aren't there. Chris Hemsworth plays Thor. Never heard of Chris Helmsworth, but I assume he's a helmsman of some sort. Sorry, Michael <laughs> Bailey and Shag. Hey, don't come on our show and get me into trouble for calling out other people. I'd have edited that bit if I'd have known. Uh, and my favourite... No, 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 that's that's somebody else. I'm not mentioning that at all. That's uh, No. I'll leave the Bailey one in because I know Mike Bailey will take it as a joke. But I don't know the other man to speak to him, so I'm not saying that. Michelini is actually pronounced Michelini. Who knew? I knew because it was mentioned in a Marvel Letters page in the 80s. Now you pronounce yeah. Michelini. Because somebody wrote Ingo, now you pronounce Michelini. And that's but it rhymes with pickle my knee. <laughs> so that's how you pronounce it. True that. Anyway, excellent new year so far. And I can't wait for more Avengers vs. X-Men goodness. Thank you for providing yet again an excellent show, Chris Keith. You're very welcome, Chris. It's always nice to hear from. Our final email of the night. He's back! <laughs> Luke Jackanetta. Back and better than ever. Those daring Leyland boys and their wondrous podcasting machine. Oh, I wish it was a machine that did everything for us. What, what's that a take off? I don't know. They'll probably tell us. It's the thing, it's the dirty man and a da 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 daring your men in a flying machine. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know that. No, no, but I thought I thought I was missing something right, okay. because that was obvious and yeah. Luke doesn't normally do obvious. Well, maybe that's because you normally don't get the obvious ones, you thought either. So you thought I normally don't get the obscure, you dumbed it down. <laughs> Which I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, my fellow Demenzo Corps employees, and I use the employees loosely in this context, just let me give you guys a belated welcome aboard here at Two True Freaks. It's great to have a podcast of your stature as part of the lineup. Just make sure all of your shots are up to date, you should be fine. <laughs> I'm sure that thing that happened to me when I joined was a, a million to one shot. Is that that funny itching that I've been getting? I think so. They told me that I'd go away. Yeah, I don't think it has done yet, though. No, I'm still scratching. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, sorry about not having written in, as is my want, but life has been a comedy of errors on the listening to podcasts and emailing front. I used to listen to podcasts while at work, as I worked in an office on a computer, and this practice was not frowned upon. Easy breezy, as the saying goes. Listen, make a few notes, voila, it's an email. Then I moved from the office to the job site. I'm an engineer for a firm that designs and builds large-scale industrial and manufacturing facilities along with mines, infrastructure, embassies and so forth. And going to the field is not uncommon. But it does make it hard to listen to other podcasts when you're working on a laptop in a trailer with 20 other people. Not hyperbole. No problem, I started putting the podcast on my MP3 player and listening through the auxiliary jack in my car. Took longer to listen to the shows, but otherwise all was good in podcast land. Then my wife got into an accident with her car. Everyone was alright. Good. Good. Mm. We're glad everyone's okay. But the result was that she ended up swapping cars as the doors on the passenger side, that's the right-hand side here in the real world, <laughs> folks. Oh, is this like your funny colonial spelling? <laughs> that you, your cars are on the wrong side of the road as well, but oh, no, everyone else, no, I'm not having that. <laughs> God, I sound like Mutley. <laughs> 
Doors are stuck in place and cannot be opened. That's fantastic. Do you know what that means? Get through the window. Yeah, and change his name to Duke. Yeah. And he's Luke Duke. You used to let me do that as a kid. I did, because I was very good. That was great, but you did make me promise not to tell mum. She's not around, is she? No. Gift. (laughs) Um, So, I used the damaged car for my commute since driving a beat-up car in a construction site. It's not exactly unusual, but alas, tis the car that does not have an auxiliary jack and thus their avenue is closed. Hmm... So fine, I start downloading your show at work and listening on lunch break, right? I can still do what I want on my lunch break, even when I have them. And then the move happens, and I can no longer download the show. Podomatic is clear on my work filter, but Libsyn is not. How goofy is that? Are you serious, bro? Luke, I have a suggestion for you. Download them at home, stick them on a USB stick. Yeah. Stick the USB stick in at work, put your headphones on. Genius thinking. You'd think that I did stuff like that at work myself, wouldn't you? You do work. But I don't. You do work all the time. And anyone who says that I do is a a liar and a communist. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the fates themselves, Luke continues, Dr. and Mrs. I can only presume don't want me listening to podcasts. So please excuse my lack of communication as of late. I can only presume that your shows have been up to the same high standards of quality which have become its calling card. That or it's dropped off completely, one of those two for sure. The last Just keep assuming. <laughs> keep, yeah, keep assuming. Don't listen. Yeah. Keep assuming that it's brilliant and that way we'll we can never, never let, let you down. down. Genius! We don't become that third season of Star Trek that was no. a bit crap, do we? Was the third crap? It wasn't as good as the first two. Still watchable because, you know, the Shatman's in it. <laughs> yeah. Always worth it. Anyway, keep up the insert adjective here at work and welcome aboard. Luke, who may or may not hear this email being read. <laughs> well, it was nice to hear from you, Luke. We're glad that your wife was okay mm-hmm. and wasn't hurt. Um, yeah, you know the address. Hey, kids, comics at virginmedia.com. You'll see it pop up at the bottom of the screen. If we had a screen. Yes. If we could do that, yeah. that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. I have thought of doing a video one. Have you? Yeah, well, we take pictures on the on the iPad and post them on Facebook as the show goes up. So when we say this panel was great, and people are going, Andrew, it's an audio medium. You have to tell us what the panel is. We can show them what the we panel can is. show them what the panel is. So we're going to take a quick break and rest my weary throat, and then Michael takes the con again. Yeah. For the final time mm-hmm. in this particular run, because next week it's all me, baby. Uh, for farewell, Hellblazer. Yeah, it probably will be all you. Part two. Better not be. It won't be. You like, you better like Golden Age Superman. <laughs> I better. I'm yeah. not having a I don't see how you cannot like a Superman that throws people <laughs> into trucks. Love it. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Mm-hmm. So that means if we play your trailer now, you owe us money. Hey! See you in a minute. Bye bye. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And we're back. And we're back. Almost professional. <laughs> we're back <laughs> from that little commercial break where you heard a lot of people talk about their shows that you really should go listen to. It's a little night music from Hey Kids Comics. Those shows, unless they uh, actually disbanded. And- <laughs> <laughs> 
You can't say that because they don't know. I know. Michael edited a show. He put in a trailer for a show that was long since gone. And I was like, should we leave it? Because that would be funny. <laughs> yeah. But we changed our mind and, and Michael re-edited the show. Mm-hmm. It was funny to us. It was. Yeah. Um, we're continuing with Farewell Hellblazer, yeah. you Michael. Mm-hmm. And what's occurring this year? We trucking with K. Billy Super Comics of the 90s. <laughs> and they are Super Comics of the 90s, yeah. for the most part. Next up on our Hellblazer uh, coverage is issue 71. Um, okay. We're still in the Garth Ennis room. We picked another Garth Ennis one. Just because. Just because. And this is... Uh, this is... In, it's moderately important in the overall scheme of things. Yeah. It's... Issue 71 has an awesome cover by Glenn Favre of a World War Two era fighter pilot skeleton still clutching the control column with the um, Hawker Hurricanes in the background. It's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely great cover. Have a look on the website because we can't do this one justice, mm. to be honest with you. It's uh, Fabriati's best. It is. It's Fabriati's finest. We, we have a few issues occasionally with Mr. Fabri. As an overall. I As guess. an overall. Certainly on his covers for Preacher where Tulip never looked the same twice. Mm-hmm. But this is a great cover. Because as a woman, she never wore the same thing more than twice. That's true. Issue 71, young Michael. Issue 71, Finest Hour, was written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, colours by Tom Ziuko, lettered by Gaspar, and was edited by Julie Rottenberg and Stuart Moore. John is homeless, drunkenly living on the streets after Kit left him and went back to live in Ireland. He winds up on a small beach far away from London and collapses next to a skeleton. It's 1940 and Jamie Kilmartin, a pilot of a Hawker Hurricane, wakes up as his plane spirals into a small town with some of its engines on fire. He manages to save himself but his stick jams and he's unable to move and unable to bail out due to the low height. Jamie is taken back to a memory of a senior officer scolding him for accepting death so he decides to live and pilot the plane as best he can back to base. He passes the Thames, but the engine gives out and the wing breaks apart. The plane crashes down, and John wakes up looking into the eyes of the skeleton. He gets up and finds the remnants of the plane under the bushes and weeds, and heads back into London. A man walks up to him and tells him he's just had a sudden urge to give John all of his money and walks away. That was great, that was. He buys himself a hotel room, shaves, and get dressed before returning to the plane and buries the skeleton of Jamie before walking away. The plane is repaired, and Jamie flies the hurricane towards the sun. What a brilliant issue. It's smack dab in the middle of a big major storyline. John's whining, self-pitying because Kit's left him. Yeah. And yet it stands alone as another one of Garth Ennis's testament to soldiers. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant, wasn't it? It's, I loved it's, it's this one. a war story in Hellboy. Yeah, it? I loved this one. Good pick. Thank young you. Michael um, <clears throat> page one <clears throat> destitute John is singing an Irish folk song it the mountains like of Bourne by Percy French but made internationally famous by American Pie singer-songwriter Don McLean <clears throat> I'd never heard it hmm. but, I don't. you know um, apparently John was taught it by Kit yeah, which is fair enough, I suppose. Dylan's art is exceptional here, depicting a down-on-his-look, essentially vagabond job, complete with bushy beard and straggly hair. The backgrounds are especially good. Hmm. Very typically British as well, does, you know, junk all over the yeah. place and worn-out tyres and stuff. I mean, this is Dylan at his best. 
Better than Preacher? Yeah. This run on Hellblazer. <laughs> this was when he was like, he's, even though it's all scratchy, it's scratchy in a detailed way. When he was working on Preacher, he was midway between detailed and cartooner. Now he's just a flat out cartoon artist. You think? Yeah. See, I've not seen anything that he's done recently, so I can't really comment. But, um, yeah, how long has he been destitute at this point? Well, John has been living on the streets ever since issue 68 when Kit left him in issue 67. So four issues. See, if I have a complaint about Ennis' run, this felt like it went on forever. Yeah. I mean, it's only four issues, but in real time, it's four months. Mm. So when this was the issue that was the end of it. Yeah, this was him pulling himself back up by his bootstraps, wasn't it? It's very good. I think, in a way, the longness of it is kind of what makes this kind of important. Yes. Because Kit is an important character. And she does keep recurring, doesn't she? Yeah. You never, which, you don't not see her again after this. Which we'll say later. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the homeless part, I think, was important because of Kit as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you had to establish that John felt for her more than he'd ever felt for anybody before. Mm. And given how normal Kit was, there was a certain element there of him achieving the normal life that he never thought he would. Yeah. And arguably he wouldn't be happy with. Mm. So... Yeah, yeah, man. At the time of reading it, this felt over long. Rereading them, it didn't feel as bad. Yeah. When you can just churn through it, because you can read an issue of this in twenty minutes. Yeah. Get Ennis writes good comics. He doesn't write particularly lengthy comics, mm. which is not so that the themes aren't deep in a lot of cases. Like this one. This one's fantastic. Um, page three. There's a wonderful line. About uh, Constantine, I had this mate called Dave, he was flogging his ass or dying of AIDS, but he was a clever little bloke. He said, It's not so bad being the lowest form of friggin' life. At least it means you can't go any lower. Which is almost poetic, yeah. if slightly pathetic, mm. isn't it? It describes John pretty well, though. Yes, it does describe John pretty well at this moment, and then he falls asleep next to the skeleton. And Which moves it. throughout the story. Does it? It seems to, Because yeah. his top arm's above his head, though. His top arm's still above his head, though. But then later on, when he wakes up, the arm's, like, on him? Yeah, well, they're very nebulous as to how this actually works, mm. which works for the story, Yeah, in many ways. Has John tapped into the skeleton's memories? Or is Jamie alive in some way? And his spirit has tapped into John. Because the ending of the issue... It has him moving on. Has Yes, has John freeing his spirit. Yeah. So has his spirit got a hold of John because John's sensitive to this stuff? Or is John's sensitivity to this stuff enabled him to latch onto the spirit? Or does it really not matter? Or maybe John doesn't know anything about it and just buried it because... Why not? Well, John... No, John has memory of this at the end of it. Yeah. It's John... John's realisation that Jamie didn't want to die, but circumstances led to him dying, mm. that makes him realise he's been a self-pitying whiner. Yeah. So John has a memory of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I say, it doesn't really matter which way around it is. Yeah. And the fact that they leave it nebulous it actually works for the story. Mm. Because you can't argue with it. Because you, you don't know exactly how it happened. Yeah. Which is perfectly fine, because that's not the point of the story, is it? No. The point of the story is never giving up. Mm-hmm. It's like Rocky said. That great <laughs> philosopher. Doesn't matter how hard, you, matter hit. How hard you hit. <laughs> how hard you can get hit. It's how hard you can get hit and get back up. Well done, Rocky. <laughs> Full of words to live by. Yeah. I think you'll agree. 
page six is utterly, utterly phenomenal. It's arguably one of the best pieces of Dylan art ever. It's um, a simply magnificent splash page of a Hawker Hurricane narrowly avoiding impact with the ground and bringing the nose up just in time but clipping the top of the church. Uh, along with the Spitfire Mark I, the Hawker Hurricane is perhaps most famous for its role in the Battle of Britain, taking place from July to September 1940. Although overshadowed by the Spitfire, it ensured that the Luftwaffe Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe. I can never pronounce that right. Did not take England as it had France. Thanks in part to the sheer number of them and the closely grouped machine guns. Mm -hmm. So well done the Hawker Hurricane and the pilots that flew in you. That is a great splash page, isn't it? It's a sexy plane. It's, uh, well that's the thing, isn't it? The Spitfire is considered the sexy plane. They look very similar, though. They do. The Spitfire does look a bit more aerodynamically sexy. It's smaller, isn't it? Yeah, and it's smaller and more aerodynamic and was quicker in the turns, yeah. which meant that in aerial dogfights, the Spitfire was faster and more manoeuvrable. Mm. But the Hawker Hurricane pulled its weight in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. The Hawker Hurricane, if memory serves, got more kills. Yeah. Because it was capable of just barreling down and shooting. Mm. Whereas the Spitfire was very dodgy. The Spitfire was the Vipers in Battlestar Galactica. Whereas the Hurricanes were the Vipers Hurricane. in original Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, probably. That probably worked. Um, page 7, the pilot, as Michael mentioned in his synopsis, is 18-year-old Jamie Kilmartin, realises he's going to die today. Which is very subtle. Very subtly handled by Garth Ennis. A writer who people frequently say isn't known for his subtlety. I would disagree. He's become known for his lack of subtlety. Mm, but when he wants to, when he puts his mind to it, oh. he's capable of great character moments and great subtlety. Uh, page eight. John's talking... John. Jamie's talking about the mirror being full of Messerschmitts. The Luftwaffe... Uh, see, I can't say it. Plane of choice, the 109, had better speed at higher altitude and was armed with cannons rather than machine guns. But if the Spitfire could keep his speed high, the Spitfire could normally best, best the Messerschmitt in a dogfight. The Hurricane, however, was slower but more agile and, as I've already mentioned, scored more kills in the Battle of Britain mm -hmm. than the sexier Spitfire. There was a Spitfire in town over summer. Was there? I've got a picture of it before. Yeah. Fantastic looking plane. You know what? The Spitfire almost landed on Nan and Grandad's car. Did it? Where? Can't remember what was going on, but we were going somewhere, and we were in the car, and we were driving up these um, hills. Like, it's got unearthly dark. We look up through the sunroof, there's a Spitfire right on top of us. Excellent! Yeah. And was my Grandad very giddy? Oh, yeah. Because my Grandad loves the Spitfire. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, page 10, Kilmartin Squadron Commander, is awesome. This scene is very familiar. They're war stories. To war st there are many, many scenes in war stories that are exactly like this. The grizzled commander. Yeah, the drunk guy in the church. Yeah, giving the, the young newcomer a pep talk. But it's it works every single time that he does it. Yeah. I don't know why, it just does. I loved what he said. You don't accept death. You don't humanise it. It's not your frigging friend. You fight. You fight to the last bloody drop. Which was great. Mm. I liked that a great deal. Very good. That Now that's an inspiring speech. Yeah. I'd follow him into battle after <laughs> that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Forget we band of brothers. <laughs> I'm following this guy. <laughs> Because uh, on page 12, 
Jamie takes it to heart and makes his choice to live. And he skirts the hurricane across the land. But the reason he decides he can't die is great. Mm. Who's going to look after the dog? <laughs> that yeah. was just beautiful. I like the art on that page. As it zooms in. Because the- it's like another subtle way of showing him making his choice to live because mm. it starts off on a long shot of the plane and then it, each panel zooms in slower and slower on the canopy until you get right in on Jamie's face in profile mm. where he says I want to live and he starts just coasting the hurricane for as far as he can because he's too low down to eject isn't he Yeah, they've established he's too close to the ground to eject and survive so the best he can hope for is to actually keep the plane gliding through the air till he can come in for a land somewhere, preferably not a populated area. Mm. And sadly, he doesn't make it, which was quite sad because mm. it was one of those things where you start rooting for. Yeah, even, even though, though you know he's the skeleton. Yeah, so you know he doesn't survive, mm. but you wanted him to. Yeah. Throughout the entire issue, you wanted him to live, and the remainder of the story is silent. Um, after he crashes the plane goes into a dive because it becomes a brick and just falls and the skeleton presumably falls out of the aeroplane and John wakes up with the memories of the plane crashing and he turns over to the skeleton which does look like it's crawling towards him yeah you're right so it's not moving so much as it is physically crawling towards him because that's what it looks like doesn't it Mm. and John freaks and panics and then he realises what's going on and he calms down Mm. which was a lovely little touch so maybe that answers your question then yeah maybe he was showing him the memory yeah I think so because he's not doing it for John he's He's doing doing it for himself but inadvertently yeah he gives John a reason to carry on Mm-hmm. Which is it's, it's a really lovely story. John digs in the bracken and the dirt, and long buried and forgotten, he finds Kilmartin's skeleton in the plane. But his story influences John, and John comes out of his funk. Um, the first time I read this, I've already mentioned, I thought it was about time. Because four months was a long time to drag this on. Kilmartin's story, inspirational and optimistic, affects John, and on page 18, the single best scene in the book. Yeah. He walks up to a complete stranger, an upper-class MP toff kind, and just makes him give it his wallet and his cash card by just looking at it. I love the bit about the um, checks. It's like, oh, but I'll have to sign it. Shall I do it? No, no, I'll just... Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have no problem. How remiss of me. You'll need to sign the checks. They won't accept your signature. That's uh, all right, mate. I'll have no trouble forging yours. Which is <laughs> <laughs> just brilliant. It's a great, great page. It's really, really good. Um, page 20, we get the return of John Constantine. And the coat. And the coat. Clean shaven again. He's not trimmed his hair, though. He's still got long hair, hasn't he? Whereas um, previously, no, it's, it's, he's, it's cut. He's had quite... He's had shorter hair than that Yeah. in the series. He's gone for a bit of a longer hair look. It's not a mullet, though. No. Let's establish that straight out the gate. <laughs> uh, and he goes back and buries Jamie Kilmartin. John's unspoken eulogy is actually very touching. His realisation that it doesn't matter if he was patriotic or doing it for the right reasons, he loved life. And this bleeds over into John, who, at his lowest ebb, didn't care about anything. And John buries the skeleton, 
It doesn't say what he does with the plane. No. Presumably he just leaves the plane, but he buries the skeleton and gives him a decent burial at last. And it just ends with John holding the spade that he's buried him with and says, I think I owe you something, mate. And the very last page, after John walks away, realising that, you know, I've got stuff to do, is a glorious shot of Jamie rolling the hurricane over, his spirit free at last, and flying the hurricane straight up into the sunset. It's Garth Ennis, once again putting a human face on war, and scoring big, with a remarkably low-key story about not giving up. It's that simple. But if it were that simple, we'd all be doing it. Mm. Just lovely. Absolutely fantastic. Excellent pick, young Michael. It was your pick, really. Was that mine? It was. I thought I picked 40. I thought 40 oh, yeah, was I my pick. Because I thought it was important to have John and his Smith's face. Yeah, but it's also... It's a good standalone issue. Yeah. Highlighting what would become one of Ennis's trademarks. Well, it's probably better. It's a standalone issue that signifies... A major turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very, very good indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, the next choice... We skip forward a bit. We skip forward quite a bit. Quite a lot. Into issue 200. Tim Bradstreet cover. Uh, it's an excellent photorealistic cover. Tim, Tim Dabbs Bradstreet did all the Punisher ones, didn't he? When yeah. Garth Ennis was doing the Punisher. He did quite a lot of Hellblazer around this point. Did he? Yeah. Because I've never read around this point. I've never read any of the Mike Curry run apart from this one. I really don't like Tim Bradstreet, though. Do you not? No. What do you not like about that cover? It's a cover of, I suppose we should tell people, paint a visual picture. Yes. In audio. Except we've not got any paint. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a Chris Honeywell joke. I just ripped it off. Hi, Chris. Uh, John holding a birthday cake stuffed with Siggy's. I thought it was pretty damn good. I liked it. What do you not like about it? I don't, there's something about it which I don't like. And I'm, I don't know what it is. Is it too photorealistic? I suppose. It just... It kind of looks dirty and... It's a chocolate cake covered with cigarettes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit dirty. Mm. Is that... <coughs> If you take the colour away from a Tim Bradstreet image, there's nothing to it. But isn't, haven't we levelled that criticism against Frank Quitley in All-Star Superman? In All-Star Superman, yeah. Yeah, if you take the colour away, there's not a lot there. Mm. Alright, fair enough. I quite liked it, you didn't. Fair dues. I just can't... Get into it. Get into it. This is from November 2004. Yeah. So we've skipped forward about, what, six years? Only Six. I thought the Elders, I thought the Ennis one was 97. Oh, no, it can't be, because he was doing Preacher in 95. And he finished it just before, so 93, 94. 93, 94, yeah. yeah. Anyway, carry on. Happy <coughs> Families. Oh, sorry, I'll start again. Happy Families is by Mike Curry and artist Steve Dillon, Marcello Frusin and Leonardo Manco, coloured by Lee Laffridge, lettered by Clem Robbins and edited by Casey Sages and Will Dennis. It's a requirement if you work on Hellblazer, you have to have a name that's unpronounceable. <laughs> yeah. John is being dragged underwater until he's completely underneath. He wakes up in his house, slightly overweight, and washes his face before heading downstairs to see Kit and his son with an anniversary cake. Kit leaves for the garage, and John drops Adam, his son, off at the Charminders before heading to El Dorado's casino, where he's told he owes the casino two grand in time for opening tomorrow. John head downstairs and plays a game before leaving a few hours later and passes the childminder's house with the police outside. 
He finds Adam, and the police tell him that the childman had taken drain cleaner, and the kids had been lying with her dead body for over an hour. Later, Kit comforts Adam, and John says they should postpone their anniversary meal for a few days and stay with Adam, but Kit refuses and says her death was probably for the better, as Adam never liked her anyway. Later at the pub, the owner of the casino comes in and yells at John until one of his own men shoots him and begins to shoot up the pub. John phones home where Trish, Chas's granddaughter, answers and John is relieved to find that there's nothing wrong. At John and Kit's meal, Kit turns her phone off and when John asks why, she tells him that their son's about to go through his rite of passage and become a man. John finds himself running home where he sees Trish dead and is told by Adam that he made all the people kill themselves before Kit walks in and tells John that he promised her all of one day and turns off the lights. John wakes up on a train being told it's the end of the line. He meets up with his partner Zed and his son, Saul, and is led back home where Saul just transformed the gardens into a forest. The next day, John enters a trance but is pulled out hours later by a car crashing into a tree outside. He rushes there to see Gemma, his niece, dying. In her last breath, she tells him that Saul's torturing the green and John rushes off to find Saul and ignores Zed's calls to stop. He smashes his way into Saul's greenhouse and sees the people transformed into plants and at the centre he finds Alec Holland, the Swamp Thing. Saul comes up behind him and John stabs him in the chest with shears, but they have no effect on Saul and he's already turned himself partly into a plant. Saul then grabs John by the throat and holds him underwater. He wakes up from his daydream cooking chips at a cafe with his partner Angie. They head to their daughter Mariah's school, where they're told by the head teacher that they're expelling her. John attacks the man and asks him questions about his life and what's in his drawer. The man doesn't answer and John checks the drawers and sees that there's nothing there and knows for sure that he's living a lie. Back at the cafe he looks through newspapers that say it's 14 years later and he remembers it being. His daughter comes with, with her friends and asks to stay over at a friend's house. He asks her if he was ever there for her and she gets weirded out and walks away. <laughs> weirded out? <laughs> yeah. John follows them into an abandoned building where he sees them stabbing a tied up homeless man. John and Mariah, Maria fight until she slices his face and Kit walks through a door with Saul and Adam and tells John that now he's been beaten by all three of his children, he's been chosen to breed with and raise the children of who is revealed to be the daughter of Nurgle. She says he can live, as he agrees to give her one day, and then returns him to reality. He wakes up on a street, lights a cigarette, and walks past a diner he once ate at with Kit in another life. Yes, I, this is the weakest one you've picked tonight. Is it? Yeah. Um, it's not awful. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Um, but before we get there, we yes. should do some kind of page-by-page analysis, because that's what we're paid for. Yes. Paid? <laughs> Uh, page one, the two sides of the page representing an idyllic lifestyle and John being pulled back into the lifestyle he's trying to get away from is very well realised by Dylan. It's... The order's quite messed up. Why? Look at it. The top one is his life with Zed and Saul. Mm-hmm. Followed by... Um, Just a shot of London. Is it London? Yes, Waterloo Bridge. Right, yeah, okay. So it's his life with... Andrew and Maria mm. and then the bottom one is, is life with Kit and then it follows on for the Kit storyline oh, right. which makes sense to me Fair enough. and then the other side of him drowning is yeah. signifying that something's not quite right mm. so Steve Dillon does the art for the first part of the story <clears throat> so you not see here how it's more simplistic and cartoony yes I see 
I wouldn't say more cartoony, but I see what you mean about it not being as hyper-detailed mm. as it was in the last issue that we covered. Um, there's a couple of good lines on page two. Relatable more now that I'm this age. Um, there's a bit about, I uh, can't take me heel anymore, I don't want to which is quite true I'll go out now and there's a, some, a certain point in the night where I've had enough Yeah. whereas you just used to carry on drinking mm. whereas now I'm like no I don't want to feel sick all night and I don't want to have a banging headache when I get up tomorrow morning yeah. so you get to the point where I don't know whether it's age or experience or wisdom or maturity <laughs> or one of those stupid things where you get to the point in the night where you go yeah I've had enough drinking now mm. so you either go home or you just move on to coke <laughs> or shandy because pub coke makes my teeth itch. Too much soda stream okay. in pub coke. Um, there's also the lovely bit about um, I don't want to shave and see my father's face in the mirror. Because I hate looking in a mirror. Do you? Yeah, I just, I'm just not fond of it. You won't get that because you look more like uh, <laughs> your mum's yeah. brother than you look like me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Which, you know, may work out well for you. It may not. Who knows? Um... Page three, we're instantly clued into the fact that something's wrong, yeah. aren't we? John's a happily married family man and is going to be a dream, or witchcraft, or both. Yeah. Because this kind of story's been done with Superman, and mm. Batman, and Buffy, and in Smallville, and it never ends in happiness. I do like how Steve Dillon's back for the Kit story. Yes, because Kit looks like Kit. Mm. which is a criticism I do have about an issue we're going to do in a, in an issue's time. Well, she looks a lot younger. Well, she suddenly looks a lot younger, yeah. yeah. And doesn't actually look like Kit. Yeah. So, so yes, it was nice to have Dylan back drawing Kit because she looked like Kit. I did like on page four the expression on um, Adam Constantine's face when he gets left with the nanny. Yeah. His facial expression, he really is one of, I'm going to kill this cat. <laughs> <coughs> the biggest pout ever. Yes. And not a sexy pout, because he's not a girl. Mm. Girls can pout sexily. Boys, not so much. I don't like how John's in debt to a casino. Yeah, for two grand. Because even in a happy life, John's still John. Yeah. yeah even in his, in his fictional <laughs> yeah. dreams, where he's got everything he could possibly want, he's still in hock to a gangland boss. He's messed up, <laughs> isn't he? Yeah. To be honest with you, completely screwed up. Um... Dylan seems more at home here on the superhero books he's been drawing recently. Even the Punisher. Yeah. He seems more at home drawing Hellblazer. Even though you're right about it not being quite as detailed, it's more clean than it used to be. It's still pretty damn good. Maybe it's because <clears throat> everyone in this is a person. Whereas you can argue with Punisher, he's still bordering on the superhero story. Yeah, and Dylan was saddled with Ennis's more tongue-in-cheek stories. Yeah. He didn't get the serious ones that he did in Punisher Max, Max, did he? Well, because he wanted a gritty, realistic artist on that. Yeah, and I, I thought the art was the worst thing about it. Ennis's stories were still good, mm. but I really didn't like the artwork. The yeah. Punisher looked old and porky. That was the point of the story, though. I know, because Ennis was playing with the whole he's ageing in real time thing again, wasn't he? He yeah. was a Vietnam veteran. So at the time those stories were written, he would be in his late 50s. Mm. And Ennis was playing with all of that. Whereas Dylan got saddled with Welcome Back Frank and Punisher Warzone. Both entertaining, but the Punisher as over-the-top 
tongue-in-cheek, Tarantino-esque comedy violence, yeah. rather than a serious story. Hmm. So maybe that's why he didn't seem as at home as he does here. Um, I've never read this before I read this for the show. This is an era of Hellblazer I know very little about. The nanny shows up dead, and I instantly suspected Adam Constantine. <laughs> now, was yeah. that the predictability of the story, or was that me just, I've read too much Hellblazer? Maybe you were supposed to. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it just wasn't predictable. Maybe you were supposed to think Adam was something to do with it. From the start, you know that something's <clears throat> wrong, and you know that if John's involved, it's something to do with John. Yes. I like to say this story's been in, done in tons of other yeah. places. Mostly, the end ambiguously, giving you the option that all of this is like the Buffy, mm. where she ends up, she's still in the mental asylum. Yeah. The last shot of the episode is Buffy in the mental asylum. And then next and week it goes And then to you're back to normal. So yeah. the, the implication there is this could all be in her head, and mm. she's insane. Which would be a rather disappointing screw you to people who've sat and watched the show for seven years because there was some argument about that Buffy episode that that should have been the last episode they ever did and I was like no that would have been a big middle finger to your audience Mm. and it's the same here in that you know this isn't right Yeah, I mean as far as I knew he could have been married with children at this point I had not read Hellblazer for a couple of uh, for 50 odd issues at this point Yeah, I think the Warren Ellis run was before this wasn't it and that was the last Mm. ones I read Yeah, so this could have been status quo as far as I knew, but you just got that little... Your spider sense is tingling, isn't it? Mm. Something's going on. Um, Kit's reaction on page seven seemed very off when I read it. Initially, I wondered if it was due to the writer not being Garth Ennis, who created the character. But on the next page, John actually questions that Kit seemed a bit off. Mm. So suddenly I'm clued into how the story's working. I'm supposed to be finding all these things wrong. Yeah. Because John's finding them John. wrong. Yeah. yeah. So it worked out very well. I do like the colouring when John and Chaz are down the pub. Mm. It does look like one of those dimly lit dives that occasionally you've been in. Because I've been in a pub where everyone stared at you when you came in. <laughs> and the, the music went... <laughs> and everyone looked at you. The music catch the video like Yeah. And me and Phil and Jonathan and Simon just turned around and left. <laughs> it was just like... Should we go then? <laughs> Let's not stay in here. <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, Newland shows up and tells John that he wants his money and gets shot for his trouble. Mm. Which was shocking. That was a story development I didn't see coming. This early? Not, not this early in the story, yeah. But... It was another one of those things as well. I thought they were going to keep this going for the entire issue. Yeah. Whereas essentially this is um, the first third of a three-act story. Yeah. Whereas I didn't know that at the time. Because mm. as I say, I've never read it before. Uh, page 12, David Blunkett gets a shout-out. David Blunkett was, at the time this story was written, Home Secretary. More famous for being blind and for the fact that despite being not a terribly good-looking man and also sight-impaired... Mm-hmm. He was an MP, yeah. so he was more famous for the fact that he was basically f***ing his way through all the women who worked in his office. <laughs> True story. Because here's one of those things... Maybe where... being blind helped. Possibly. <laughs> no, because so, some of the women weren't beaten with the ugly stick. Yeah. And you're looking at him. No offence to the guy. 
but not a portrait by any stretch of the imagination. And you're looking at the women, and you're going, how the hell has he pulled her? And it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't he diddled his secretary and, oh, yeah. I feel so bad about it. He's nailing tons of them. And it's like, Jesus Christ, maybe there are folks to be in an MP. Yeah. Anyway, page 14 reveals that Adam is responsible. Of course he is. He's called Adam. I do like the panel at the bottom of page 13. John running away in silhouette. Yeah. yeah well, I don't know you were going to pick that one. Because it's such a simple panel. Mm. It is a silhouette of John Constantine running. And that's it. Yeah. But it's, it's very, very good, isn't it? Excellent piece of, uh, piece of work. Uh, but then page 16... We enter the second third of the story after Kit is revealed to be the bad guy. And it's a very jarring art change. Yeah. Isn't it? I know it's meant to be. Because mm. we go from Dylan's clean style to typical vertigo. In that it's, there's doer colours, more blacks. It's Edward Edward Rizzo, isn't Eduardo it? Rizzo. Eduardo, that's it. The guy who did 100 bullets. Yeah. And that god-awful Batman story that I didn't like. With yeah. Brian Azzarello. And the other Batman story with Brian Azzarello you did like. Did I? The Flashpoint one. I didn't mind the Flashpoint one. Yeah. Because he wasn't really writing Batman then, was he? No. I don't dislike Edward Rizzo, Eduardo Rizzo's art. Yeah, it's just next to Next Dylan to Steve in Dillon. The, it's in the same comic. Yeah, you're suddenly like, what? What's going on? Yeah. Um, yeah, struck me as a bit odd, that. Well, Zed um, is one of John's former partners. Who, See, I didn't know who she was. Well, there's a lot of them where I knew of them. I right. just need to remember who they were because a lot of them are very early girlfriends of John's. Pre Delano? Uh, no, in Delano. Right. Who, um, Zed first appeared in Hellblazer issue 4. Right. And was the daughter of an evangelical family but became a pagan sorceress in Scotland in the Fear Machine story. I read the Fear Machine. Mm-hmm. Ages ago, like yeah. 20 years ago. I quite like the... Uh, so not as ages ago as me. Not as ages ago as you, no. Don't worry, did you read it more than 20 years ago, did you? <laughs> Good going. In the womb. When we got the scan for you, there were you, sat with a comic in your hand. Probably. And instantly we were like, that's my boy. <laughs> and you know what? It wasn't even a Looney Tunes comic, it was Hellblazer. <laughs> and he popped out with an issue of Preacher in his hand and the doctor said, I don't approve of the way you're raising this child. Before it's born. Yeah. <laughs> um, page 18. I did get a bit confused by this middle third, and it's easily my least favourite chapter of the book. Yeah. Is this Abbey and Swamp Thing's son? No, it's John and Zed's son. So who's... Because Saul calls John dad all the way through it. He does, but why does Abby keep getting mentioned? Who I presume is Abby of Swamp Thing fame. Um... I didn't get that at all. Because he was using Swamp Thing for his green people, and so she'd be involved in that. Right, okay. Because, yeah, Swamp Thing does make an appearance as being dead mm. at some point later in the story. Is John supposed to be substantially older in this chapter? He's getting... Each segment is years apart from each other. Right. So at the beginning, it's five years away from where we are, mm. and by the end, it's 14 years away from where we are. Right. So the fact that he was drawn to look considerably older wasn't a gaffe. No. All right. Um, I didn't really have a lot of page-by-page notes for this chapter because I say it was my least favourite of the three. So pages 19 through 26, the pace did actually start picking up Mm. around here. 
making this a real page turner but I, I really didn't enjoy this section as much as the other two once we move away from John the ordinary bloke who is a mage and we move into John master of the mystic arts I kind of lose interest Yeah. additionally I didn't know who these people were meant to be and what if any relationship they had to John he kept calling him dad but I didn't get where he'd come from and I didn't know who Zed was well, but I knew who Kit was with Adam as well I, yeah, but I got is, that one. Yeah, I got that story, even if I well, didn't know, you know who, who Kit, Kit was. was no, I think even if you didn't, that one still worked. I think it's because that one blatantly points out that he's married yeah. and has a son, whereas this one, he, it's just... And the fact that he was a lot older, and I, was, I just got confused by this one. I mean, like, you, see, you can argue, I read all of Garth Ennis's run, so I knew Kit... But I think the opening chapter works whether you know her or not. On page 20, it also has a caption error. Did you notice that? No. Thunder rumbles on the horizon, endlessly threatening, but the storm never stops. <laughs> no full stop, whether that's supposed to be the end, or whether a word has dropped out of the caption box. Yeah. It just disappears. So there was a mistake on page 20, unless it wasn't a mistake and it was being deliberately obtuse. <laughs> but we don't know. Uh, page 27, typically for Hellblazer, the dialogue has a nice vein of black humour to it. There's a lovely little line about um, life is mostly a waste of time, but it makes nice noises if you squeeze it, which was very funny. Mm. As was, that. that's hurtful, Dad, after he just stabbed him with the shears. <laughs> which I thought, good. Yeah. Not surprising, but... Nice. Not nice. Very good. I liked that bit. So it scored at the end. For making you giggle. For making me giggle, yes. Mm. But no, least favourite chapter of the story by far. Okay. Well, Abigail Arcane makes uh, an appearance in this for one panel. Yeah, already dead. Drowned underneath something. She has a sh- uh, her long hair. Which is nice. I miss her long hair. Do you? She has short hair now. She does, doesn't she? In... Animal Man and Swamp Thing. Although my sketch she has long hair. That's fair enough. You from can you can draw however you want. Becky don't Cloonan. Well, did you request long hair from Becky Cloonan? No, I just asked for Abigail Arcane because she'd drawn the Swamp Thing annual, which is set in the past where she has long hair. She drew with long hair. Fair enough. Well, I'm not complaining either way. I got a, a sketch for free. Yeah. Uh, page twenty-eight. The art changes again for the third act. Again, it's still murky. But I like this more than the free, the previous chapter, sorry. Although John doesn't look on model at all in this one. No. He, why is he ginger? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a ginger in this one, <laughs> which I just totally didn't understand. John's always been blonde. Yeah. Well, People who blonde. cast Keanu Reeves in the movie take note. He is blonde in a couple of panels, though. Yeah, and then he's ginger again. Yeah. And he doesn't look anything like John Constantine. Not even an old John Connor. No, it's, 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 you're suddenly reading this book and going, who's this guy? Mm. Very confusing to me, Yeah, I think. Uh, Angie Spatchcock. <laughs> what a great name. Yeah. <laughs> is a magician and waitress who is another one of John's exes. Uh, her first appearance was Hellblazer 175. I looked at the bottom of page 33 with John's daughter and her friends. John raised her wrong. I know I instantly thought, my future, because she just looks like your sister. <laughs> And I just thought, oh, kill me now. Yeah, I'm reading her dialogue as well. and Yeah. Mm. No, stop growing up. I don't want y'all to grow up. I want y'all to stay <laughs> little. Um, page 35. 
has Maria Constantine really just cut that guy's eyeball out? Uh, yeah. Because there's an eyeball on the floor. Yeah. And a big pointy knife. Mm. Yes. Um, page 38, because again, I'm sorry, the first part was good, the second part was a bit weak, the third part was better. But page 38 also has an error in the word balloon. Mm. And for hell to rule on earth, it needs must rule over him. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Two editors and... And for hell to rule on earth, it needs must rule over him. Surely that should be for hell to rule on earth, its needs must rule over him. Or it needs mm. to rule over him. I didn't... That makes no sense to me. No. No, I didn't get that. So I meant there's two editors working on this book. Yeah. And there's two quite important mistakes in it mm-hmm. that make the reader go, What? <laughs> so I didn't I didn't get that. Maybe it does make sense and I read does that make sense to you? No. Good. So it's not just me then. Yeah. Not just me being picky in wanting, you know, the dialogue to make sense <laughs> in my stories. Um, you and your need for linear storytelling. Me and my need for my <laughs> stories to make sense eventually, yes. Yeah. It helps if the dialogue makes sense. Mm. You get a nude woman in it. I suppose that makes things makes it up for you. Um, it was a game of two halves, this one. Or thirds, I suppose. I like the opening. Pretty straightforward art-wise and easy to follow. The art hurt the second one, and by the third one I'd lost a little bit of patience and wanted to straight to wrap up in the way that I knew it would, i.e. none of this would be real, per se, and John would go back to normal. To give it props, it doesn't have a nice, tidy wrap-up ending, the implication being that Nurgle has actually managed to create three alternate timelines where John has three kids and she's now harnessing their power, presumably for a future storyline. But this issue was everything that is good and infuriating about Vertigo, Vertigo comics in one simple issue. I did enjoy reading it, for the most part, but if you're on the fence with Vertigo, this issue isn't going to change your mind. Not bad, but not as good as the previous five issues we've covered. Nice link to Newcastle, though. Yeah. Fair play. Uh, there's a lovely little on the ledge column where you can have a look. I always like having a look what issues of yeah. all the comics we're coming at at this time. We are past my I read Vertigo phase at this point, aren't we? Mm. So into here, you're basically looking at all I've read of this lot is 100 Bullets Wild and Why the Last Man. Man. And even 100 Bullets, I think I started getting a bit bored of. I've un- I understand that Fables is very good, yeah. but I've never read any of it. And that's it. The Losers is apparently very good, but I've never read it, although I did love the film. Mm. I thought that film was much better than The Expendables. Yeah. The Losers was great. Really fun film. Even your brother watched that with me. If you if you can <laughs> sit your brother down and he stays still for two hours, mm. it's got something to it. Yeah. Because normally he's right aboard of this PlayStation. <laughs> but no, it was re- I really enjoyed The Losers, whereas I thought The Expendables was a bit pants. But again, that's just me. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Hellblazer 245. The cover is very Sex Pistols. In fact, John looks a little bit too much like John Lydon on the cover. Hmm. I'm sure there may be a lawsuit coming. No, no, you know who he looks like? It's Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. That is totally Gordon Ramsay as a punk rock singer. Yeah. Um, it's really evocative of a band poster, like a seedy little dive like the Playhouse it's used to be in town. It's sprawled on like an yeah. alley. Yeah, Manchester Academy. Yeah. Looks like, oh, what was the one we had to go downstairs? It's not the Academy. 
I can't remember where it was. What was that dive place we used to go watching bands in Manchester, Beb? It was really small and sweaty and stinky and you had to go downstairs. And it was at Manchester Academy. Oh, it was where we went watching the Nerf Herder, wasn't it? Yeah, we went to Son and Four Star Murray. We saw Four Star Murray there. I can't remember the name of it. Because there was another place that you went upstairs yeah. and the bar was right there. Yeah. I don't remember. It was a seed. Your feet stuck to the floor. Yeah, that was and it like stunk. Just, just kind of the back end of town. Yeah. Wasn't it? it wasn't the academy because the academy's up in, Ox in Oxford Road. Yeah, but it was the other side. Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. Anyway, that this looks like the kind of post you have in there <laughs> where me and your mum used place. to go all the time and watch cheap little punk indie bands. For about seven quid a ticket. You mean those bands that showed up before on Buffy? Before we had kids, yeah. Yeah, yeah they'd all show up on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the mix of monochrome and colour, and the graffiti is really good. I don't like this year's logo, though. Yeah. Or is that only for this issue? No, it's this era. Alright, fair enough. Well, the cover was by Lee Bermijo. Bermijo. Yeah, it's Ange. Look at the cover of that. That is totally Gordon Rams, isn't it? <laughs> Gordon Ramsay in a Hellblazer comic. <laughs> Tell us about this one, young Michael. Newcastle <clears throat> Calling, part one of two, was written by Jason Aaron. <laughs> you didn't tell me that before I read it, you <laughs> b No, but it made you read the second issue. I've not read it in time for this recording. Have you not? No, but I'm going to, because this was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Jason Aaron, with art by Sean Murphy, coloured by Lee Lothridge, lettered by Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Casey Sages. A group of American filmmakers are outside the condemned Casanova Club in Newcastle whilst filming a documentary for MTV, the best band you've never heard of, on mucous membrane. Whilst trying to get in through the gates, one of them cuts his hand and needs to stay behind in the van. The guy with the cut hand scratches at the cut when the, and when the driver tells him to stop it, he says there's something inside the cut that's itching. The rest of the group walk until one of them spots a mushroom and decides to eat it. He convinces the others that it's safe, and they all eat one. Back in the van, the guy looks under his bandages and sees a string coming out of the cut attached to a tag that says, Pull me. <laughs> Which was very funny. Yeah. The stoned group lie on the floor until the cameraman gets up to film another dead dog, leaving Dana, the female and thus leader of the group, and Travis, the annoying one nobody likes, alone. <laughs> Was that what you took from this? <laughs> it was. Dana climbs on top of Travis, and the two begin to undress each other. However, Travis is unaware that what he's really doing is having sex with a dead dog. Isn't that a Blink-182 song? <laughs> I don't think it was dead. You're not putting that in the show. <laughs> You're going to have to bleep it if you do. <laughs> you know, why don't you just not all bleep it all? Yeah, yeah. Dana walks through a foresty area and walks past the driver, who's lying on the floor with one eye missing. She walks past the van but ignores the screaming and into the club where she speaks to something and says they've been looking for him too. She gets attacked by flies and runs away from an awful thing and screams for Constantine. Elsewhere, in a train station, John Constantine buys a ticket for Newcastle. An awful thing still sounds like awful thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's meant to? Uh, probably. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, page one, you know this made me laugh an insane amount reading this, which given that I was reading it at my dinner hour at work, mm. is always embarrassing. Or not, because I don't care. Um, I love the guy from Ohio thinking that using British swear words makes him sound like he had a convincing accent. 
Now, that's, that's what made you laugh. That's what made me laugh. I laughed at the dead dog opening. Well, the dead dog, in filming the dead dog is very funny. But the accent thing got me, because as regular listeners to the show will know, my command of many different accents from all over the world mm-hmm. allows me to blend in anywhere I go much better than this poser. Oh, yeah. Because I've, I've already learned a new one tonight. Mm-hmm. The Italian. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that they were filming the dead dog for background video pudges for poaches. Mm. Background video footage for their shows. Shock value always sells. Yeah. Ask Mark Miller. <laughs> um, page two, they're making a pilgrimage, which was very sweet. To see a place where a band nobody remembers once played. At this point, when I was reading this, I was like, yeah, I wonder who the, where they are and yeah. what band they're going to talk about. <laughs> um... Yes, it's Newcastle and Mucus Membrane. I've got to give Michael props here, mm-hmm. which I'd all like to do, because well, I, I, I don't want to get too big-headed. You've done an excellent job of picking issues that, despite being by different writers, have all focused on certain specific points in John life, John's life, sorry, adding to the overall mythology. Newcastle keeps cropping back up. Nurgle yeah. keeps cropping back up. The, new, the awful thing mm. keeps cropping. You've done a very good job, though. Thank you. I'm very impressed with that. Oh, and the dog. And the dog. In issue 11, didn't yeah. the guy who owned the thingy have a dog? Yeah. Is that the same dog? Could be. It could be. Yeah. Uh, page four. And there's really a good reason for this. It's an MTV reality show called The Best Bands You've Never Heard Of. Which is actually a pretty good name for a show. Yeah. I'd watch that show. Uh, good continuity with previous stories as well. Aaron does a really good job here. Read this page aloud. And it sounds exactly like an introduction to an MTV reality and show. And you can hear the Sex Pistols in the background yeah. as well. Should we do it? Should we do one of our famous reenactments? Go on then. All right. There's only, there's only one person though. Do you want to do it? Do you want me to do it? No, you can do it. All right. Summer of 1977. Queen Elizabeth celebrates her Silver Jubilee. Star Wars opens in theatres. Elvis Presley has a heart attack on his toilet. And scores of British youngsters are inspired to start their own bands after attending the Sex Pistols God Save the Queen tour. Among them are a couple of childhood friends from Liverpool, Gary Lester and John Constantine. Their band, featuring Constantine on vocals and Lester on guitar, alongside a revolving cast of bass players and a drummer known simply as Beano, makes its debut in the fall of 1977 at the Tiny Casanova Club in Newcastle. Because they'll pronounce it wrong. <laughs> Less than a year later, Constantine and Lester would return to the Casanova Club not to perform, but instead to watch their fledgling bland be consumed forever in a blaze of mystery madness and murder. Tonight, on another punk rock episode of the best bands you've never heard of, we travel to Newcastle to explore the mystery of the Casanova Club mysteries and answer the question once and for all, whatever happened to Mucus Membrane? Ah! <laughs> Did you like that? That was very good. That was, that was great. <laughs> I was totally Zane Lowe. Totally. For a minute. Zane Lowe, if he was American and worked on MTV. He's Canadian, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, Canada, America, all the same, aren't <laughs> Tell that to a Canadian. <laughs> I'm kidding! <laughs> Lovely Canadian, friendly Canadian listeners. Canadians are friends, eh? <laughs> eh? They're not going to hate me for that, for that joke. <laughs> they'll forgive you. Yeah, they'll forgive me Actually, for that. Actually, they'll probably forgive you. They'll, they'll forgive you, they'll probably apologise to you. Yeah, they'll probably apologise. It's like saying New Zealand and Australia are the same thing. <laughs> yeah. New Zealanders hate that, don't they? Yeah. They cannot stand that at all. So I'm well aware Canada is not like America. It was just a joke. I'm only kidding. We're not sure what Alaska is, though. No, what is that? Isn't, it, isn't that, like, cold? 
<laughs> anyway, uh, lovely bit of continuity. Gary Lester is mentioned. Yeah. Who was in the first issue, if you mm-hmm. recall. And the, the Newcastle issue. Issue 11. Mm-hmm. So, again, very good piece of continuity. Yeah, Papa Midnight killed him. Did he? Mm. Papa Midnight killed him. If I Gary remember, Lester. he trapped um, the demon, what was it? Mimoth. Yes. He trapped that inside Gary Lester. Right. Because he was the guy who was scratching himself in his apartment, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so another good piece of continuity. Well done. Um, Page five. One of the things that always bugs me about horror movies is why do they obviously go into the haunted house after evil stuff has happened? But here we get a really good reason for them going inside. Mm. Um, This is essentially a found footage movie, but with comics. Yeah. And it does a really good job of that. The... um, because there is only so much a real person would take before they say, bugger this, and leave. We Which get is what here, they all say, really. but the VT team get told if they don't go inside, they're not being paid. Mm. Which is as good an incentive as any it is. to go inside the haunted house where, where people have been killed yeah. brutally. Very good. Uh, page 6 through 7 in this era of interaction and multimedia. Vertigo should really have made this mucus membrane song that we see the lyrics of as a downloadable MP3. Mm. I'm sure Jason Aaron could have whipped up a little punk ditty. Well, like I said, there's one early on, which is a music video with lyrics. So that'd be quite mucus membrane song, yeah. Did mucus membrane... Did they ever actually release any mucus membrane songs for you to download on the Vertigo website? No. That would be pretty awesome. Well, as you mentioned in this, they never recorded. They didn't? No, did they? They just played live. They just played live. Uh, Page 8. The argument about the perfect punk song... Mm is almost word-for-word arguments I've had down the pub with Phil. Hi, Phil. The last time we went out for Christmas, we argued for about half an hour about cover versions that are better than the originals. Yeah. True story. I I believe it. I won. Did you? With Johnny Cash's version of um, Hurt, which is much better than the Nine Inch Nails version. Yeah, but I like the Nine Inch Nails one. I don't dislike the Nine Inch Nails version, but the Johnny Cash version just carries more weight. I think it has more emotional impact, which so, gives yeah. it that weight. Yeah. So it's better than the original. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, I really like this uh, argument. In fact, this has added several songs to my iPod. This <laughs> has it? Yeah. After reading this issue, I've just been listening to the Dead Kennedys over and over again. Yeah, but listen to X-Ray Specs. No. I quite like X-Ray Specs. Um... I like that. Basket Case by Green Day is yeah, well, a perfect punk song. I quite like Basket Case by Green Day. I do like how he's treating this like he's the lesser hipster in a sea of raging hipsters. Yeah. Okay. Um, Anarchy in the UK, well, the Sex Pistols, obviously, is the best punk song ever made. Mm. It's the obvious choice, but there's a reason for it being the obvious choice. Yeah. Because it was the first and best, mm. in my opinion. I presume you're going to fill this one with punk soundtrack. Probably. That would be great. Can't go wrong with a bit of punk. <laughs> telling you. Only two minutes long. Yeah. Uh, page nine. Is there a book, everything I need to know about life I learned from listening to The Clash? Um, I've no idea. Because if there isn't, there should be. Yeah. Because there's books like Everything I Need to Know About Life I Learned from Watching Star Trek, isn't there? Yeah. So surely there must be one about The Clash. Probably. I would have thought so. If only we had some device which would let us... Uh, <laughs> if only we had a device that would let us search bookstores and see if such a book ever existed. Um, I don't think it did. Do you not? Should I check? Okay. Wait, what's this? We do have such a device. Okay. Google Ock. Everything I... No. Uh, everything I need to know about life I learned from The Clash. No. 
There is not a book called that. Somebody needs to write it. You know what? Let's do it. <laughs> let's let's do just that. Um, why does Taylor Rhodes look like Henry Rollins? I don't know. Do you think that's coincidental? It could be. That Taylor Rhodes looks like Henry Rollins. Tina Flowers doesn't look like anybody. Well, I suppose if you squint a bit, she looks like Susie Sue. And Chaz has put a lot of weight on, hasn't he? Yeah. Which, Only to lose it in, in the next, the, the next time we see him. Yeah, I don't know what was going on there. I like what he says, though. You want the story of mucous membrane? They were bloody awful. That's <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chaz. Yeah. Um, page is, 10. Isn't he in his I Hate John Constantine mode? Oh, is this in his I Hate John Constantine phase? Yeah. Because he's friends again with him by the, the next issue that we cover. Um, I do like the, the simplicity of this. Guy cuts his arm, arm gets possessed. Yeah. Isn't that evil dead? Yeah. And he has to hack it off with the chainsaw. Yeah, but this this bit with the tag always horrifies me every time yeah. I see it because I, I can feel the itching in my own hand. I, I thought this was great. So a little a little thing pops out of the, the scar in his hand saying, pull me. Mm. That's brilliant. That's Hammer Horror, that. Yeah. They would totally get an episode of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense out of that. You, you've not read the next issue yet, have you? No. He's still pulling it. Is he? Genius. I'm looking forward to reading the second one. I enjoyed this one. Uh, page 14. You've already mentioned the synopsis, but it bears repeating. <laughs> that high on mushrooms, the guy makes a move on them. Um, is it Dana? Yeah. And we get a nice elongated sex scene. I actually with... like the colours on this, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, the colours are great. With full frontal nudity. Female nudity. So, big thumbs up. Yeah. We're all down with that. Um, and have you ever seen The Shining? No. Jack Nicholson shining. There's a scene in that movie when you're 14 or so, he's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, Jack Nicholson approaches a naked and hot young woman. And you get, you know, all steamy in the <laughs> pants. And you're just getting, you know, it's getting. Yeah. Lubricated. <laughs> and suddenly she turns into this crusty old hag and everything just goes limp. <laughs> like that. And this is exactly the same as that. Yeah. When you turn the page from this, this quite quite turn honourable sexy for lines on a paper obviously we've got the internet now we don't need sex on paper no, just, type, just type red tube into google and um, all of a sudden we turn the page and see Travis is humping a dead dog very bloody dead which is just oh god that made me go <laughs> things that make you go what <laughs> was awful uh, page 15 the mushroom kicks in so Dana wanders into the club and the Norfolk thing is still there. Mm. And so are the bugs from issue 11. And finally we get to page 23 and I literally screamed your name as John Constantine shows up and it's a cliffhanger. Thanks very much. You are awesome. Um, this was an excellent issue. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what Constantine's wearing on the last page. Because he looks very... It looks like he's wearing tight clothes. Even his trench coat's tight. Yeah, he's wearing drain pipe trousers. As cliffhangers go, it's not the best looking one. It's not the best looking cliffhanger, but it totally works in context of the story. Mm. You've had 21 pages without John Constantine. Um, it was excellent. It's a genuine little horror movie. Well drawn characters and motivations. The fact that it's a sequel even plays brilliantly into the story. And Constantine isn't even in it until no. the last page. But his influence is felt throughout. This is what I want from Hellblazer. Yeah. A taut little horror tale with decent art, good characters. Highly recommended to fans of horror comics. Is all the Jason Orange run this good? I have no idea. I thought you'd read all of these. Uh, no. Oh, right, okay. I, I, I gave up within the Paul Jenkins, Sean Phillips phase, because that's when my summer holiday ended. Oh, right, okay. See, I was thinking of, uh, 
I don't dislike Paul Jenkins by any means, but I didn't like his Hellblazer stuff. Yeah. And then I came back for Warren Ellis's run, which I did like, but was truncated, wasn't it? Mm. By DC Pull and Shoot. And then he quit the boot, didn't After he? After nine issues. Yeah. So, it has, it has, they have subsequently printed Shoot, haven't they? Yeah. In the way, because it was... Was it pulled... Was there a shooting around the time that was supposed to be published, or did they just get cold feet about the story? No, there was a skill shooting. Right, so I can understand them pulling it then. But the fact that they didn't reschedule it for a couple of months later, I think, was why Ellis quit, wasn't it? Mm. Anyway, anyway, I enjoyed Warren Ellis's run, but then I never really went much beyond that. But this Jason Aaron issue was just fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Top notch. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick that one? Um... Because I thought we needed another writer, mm. and I thought that was kind of important to Newcastle and John, and I thought it was a really good story, so I'll put it in there anyway. It was. It was funny. It was very good. Finally tonight, issue 275 is the final issue of Bloody Carnations. Oh, was this the culmination of a story? Yes. It didn't feel like one. It felt like a standalone issue, this. Yeah. I quite like that. But this was the... <clears throat> final issue of the uh, Shade the Changing Man story. Right, okay. Uh, it's by Simon Bisley, mm-hmm. of a wedding cake filled with cigarette butts and gunk and other sorts of stuff, with a statue of Epiphany on top and one of John sinking. Reading my notes here. I know, but <laughs> I mean, I'll do the cover bit. Um, because I don't really know what to make of that cover. It's interesting with the cake and such and spilt glasses, but I'm not that big a fan of Simon Bisley. I like his work, but I never loved it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, although Simon Pegg's character in Space is named after him. So I suppose, I suppose that's a clue. Yeah, he's uh, Tim Bisley. Uh, right. Bisley comes from Simon um, Simon Bisley. Right. There you go. Tell us what happens in this issue, Michael. Confetti and Brimstone was written by Peter Milligan, penciled by Guizippe. Giuseppe. <laughs> Giuseppe. <laughs> you numped it. Cameron Cola, inked by Stefano Landini and Sean Martinborough, coloured by Trish Mulverhill and Lee Loffridge, lettered by Sal Cipriano, and edited by Gregory Lockhart and Shelley Bond. It was from 2011. It was the so most recent one. You're pretty much smack damp up to date, are you? Yeah. The demon Constantine watches Epiphany and Rene, Chaz's wife, shop for re- wedding dresses whilst John is out drinking with Brendan, Chaz and Feces McCartney. We tell him that marriage will change his life and he'll start to lose his magic. To prove a point, John tries to magic- magically refill glasses, but the drink is horrible and almost kills even Brendan, who's a ghost. They then part ways, and someone very familiar watches John walk towards them. Elsewhere, Epiphany and her bridesmaids sit on the roof of their old school and drink champagne whilst they talk about John and if she's ready to marry him. Outside of John's apartment, he bumps into Kit Ryan, who asks him why he decided to marry Epiphany. He tells her that unlike her, who refused to know about John's other life, Epiphany not only wants to be part of it, but is also interested in it, and he felt like he didn't have to hide anything from her. Elsewhere, Epiphany's dad, Terry Greaves, is making a deal with an enemy group of his to form a truce for the duration of Epiphany's wedding. As he walks away, Nurgle appears behind the group and tells them that they'll be working for him from now on. In John's apartment, he's shaving until the demon Constantine appears behind him and beats him. Elsewhere, in a train station, Gemma stands looking at her invitation and remembers a conversation with her therapist about leaving the occult world behind and how she's scared that if she'll go back and sees John again, that she'll return to it. Until she sees a ghost of John leap towards her before disappearing. 
on the day outside the deconsecrated church. Terry and Epiphany talk about going through with the wedding, and as they do, John shows up late with his face covered in scratches. Inside the church, John meets Chaz, who he insults before calming down and apologising. Later, as the ceremony happens, John, in ghost form, flies to the church as Gemma shouts out that something's wrong, but is calmed down by Kit. The wedding is disrupted by Nurgle and his demon gangsters, but the demon Constantine forces the priest to finish the ceremony and kisses Epiphany. Later, as John returns to his dead body, Kit speaks to Epiphany whilst looking for Gemma, who's in the toilets as Constantine enters and forces a kiss on her. As John rushes into the party, Epiphany walks out and is attacked by Nurgle, but the rings John gave her, made by Alistair Crowler, harms him and John finds them. Nurgle kills John, but as it turns out, it was the demon Constantine all along, and John jumps out and rips out Nurgle's spine, killing him, whilst explaining that he knew Nurgle would come after Epiphany, and so he gave her that ring that protected Crowley from him. John and Epiphany sit eating cake while he explains what happened, and he proposes to her again. The two officially get married, and as they drive away, Gemma, beaten, walks behind them, promising to make John suffer as the demon made her. Oh yeah, because she doesn't know it wasn't John, does she? No. Hmm. Um, again, I never made it this far into Hellblazer, so I'm in uncharted territory. Completely unaware of Epiphany and her lovely blue hair. Give her a chance, though. To be fair on John, she seems a far bit younger than him. If mm. he's still ageing in real time at this he's point. He's like 51, 52 here. Is he? So he is ageing properly. Yeah. And she's You wouldn't got... believe it from looking at the earth, though. No, no, no. It's, and she's 23. Yeah. Way. Well, hey. <laughs> Bless the man. Bill Hicks in it, though. Yeah. Um, Epiphany Greaves first appeared in issue 256, and is an alchemist that John used a couple of times to make a love potion for Phoebe, another of John's failed girlfriends, <laughs> and then potions to stop Julian, a creepy guy dressed as a schoolgirl. Don't want to know! I think it was John's neighbour, or Phoebe's neighbour. And he was a guy dressed as a schoolgirl. This little midget. He was a midget guy dressed as a schoolgirl. Big frizzy her. You're not making this sound any better! Yeah... Carry on. <laughs> um, also, first appearing in issue 94, the demon Constantine is, well, a demon with Nurgle's blood and Alistair Crowley's soul and cannot leave hell for long periods of time unless properly summoned. Um, I liked the conversation on page two between Epiphany and Chaz's wife, where they're talking about what she sees in Constantine. And um, Epiphany says he really likes Chaz and John doesn't have many friends. And Chaz's wife says, because most of her either dead or insane. Yeah. Which fits in. Yeah. With the overall way that uh, Hellblazer has gone, isn't it? Mm. Page three, you've got John's stag night, which is very low-key yeah. for John Constantine. It's just a few beers down the pub. Um, marriage won't change me, claims John. <laughs> oh, how naive. How naive. Um, page four, other than Chaz, I don't recall... This new generation of John's friends. Brendan's not new. I thought He's I remembered character. Brendan from somewhere. Was Brendan dead though? He was in the Ennis run. Kit's ex and John's friend. How he and how he met Kit. I don't but remember him being dead. Yeah, he. The issue he dies is the one where John comes over and Brendan shows him the little lake he has in his basement, which makes the best ale. Right. And but it's actually holy water. So the devil comes along. For Brendan's soul, because he swapped his soul for the perfect ale. Right. And so John 
after Brendan dies, John has a drink with him. Right. So he gives him this perfect ale until it then turns into holy water. And so the devil... Is this an Ennis one? Yeah. An early Ennis one. Is it Will Simpson? Yeah. Yes, I do remember that. And then one of the later issues, he's... John's just bumming around Ireland. Yeah, and he bumps into Brendan. Yeah. Yes, I think I do remember that vaguely. Right, so I remembered Brendan. I didn't remember Feces. Feces is a Milligan character, I think, who just popped out of nowhere as this guy who lived on his own and couldn't let the 70s punk scene go. Um, everyone should have a friend called Feces, though. Yeah. Shouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> or is that just me that yeah. thinks that? Uh, page five, we get the return of Kit. Even Looking though. absolutely... Do you know who she looks like, though? Yeah. She looks like Amy Acker. Yeah. Doesn't she? That's not Kit. Mm. I keep expecting her to turn into a blue-haired demon. Um, page six through eight, I quite like Epiphany's goth chick friends. All blue her nose rings and short, very short skirts, and thigh-high boots. Um, and black elbow-length gloves. And corsets. I'll be in my happy place <laughs> while you carry on doing the rest of the issue. Uh, they're all sat on a roof, which confused me, but she does explain why. Because mm. it's some kind of rite of passage, I suppose. Um, why the hell not? John's explanation to Kit on page nine as to why he's marrying Epiphany is a little bit harsh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but then, is it not harsh because he respects her and cares enough to tell her the truth? Well, he says, I loved her, I loved you too, but I love her differently. More. More. And that's like, well, break it to a girl gently, why don't you? Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I, I mean, he did, she did rip his still beating her out of his chest and jump up and down on it. Mm. which has probably left a bit of a scar yeah one would imagine but well then he's, he's John Constantine isn't he mm. so maybe it isn't a bit harsh I don't know uh, I did like page 12 where Constantine's shaving and going through the marriage stuff which is quite accurate as anyone who's got married knows I watched an episode of The Incredible Hulk the morning I got married because yeah. it was just on telly <laughs> you and me we watched the Hulk pilot mm-hmm because your mum wasn't here, obviously. <laughs> Not allowed to see the woman before the wedding. Uh, page 17. The dialogue in this issue has been uniformly excellent. But then on page 17, the conversation between Epiphany and her dad is a little fruity for a family show, so we probably won't be going into it. But we clearly see John referred to as a scouser. So what was with all that Cockney dialect bollocks in the Delaney issues? Delano issues. Delaney. Delaney. Um, maybe Delano can't write accents. He can, as long as they're all cops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he had no problem with that. <laughs> um, Nurgle has been a demon and thorn in John's side pretty much since Hellblazer began, hasn't he? Mm. And he was in an issue that we just talked about. Yeah. So again, you've done a really good job of maintaining continuity between issues... And finalising the story. And finalising the story. So you've skipped out Shed Lords, are you? But still managed to follow a continual thro- plot thread. Well done. You'd have thought I'd plan this out. You, yes. <laughs> <laughs> one would have thought you sat down and thought this through. Yeah. And yet one would be wrong, wouldn't to it? To an extent I did. <laughs> to an extent. You had a what list of issues. Like? And you were like, I don't know which to pick, Dad. What do we do? And I just went, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Right, go on. My list of several. Yeah, I just randomly <laughs> picked a 
women just by dumb luck. Yeah. It's ended up working really technique. well. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We we meticulously planned this. Yeah. <laughs> um, page thirty. The art changes, which I didn't like at all because it goes from being a Phil Hester type vibe to looking like Scott Collins. Which it isn't. I mean, it's not horribly jarring. I can't see it as much. Epiphany's changed considerably. Mm. Hasn't she? Other than having blue hair, I wouldn't know it's supposed to be the same person. Yeah. But, you know, that's how I am, I suppose. Um, page 31, we get a mention of Alistair Crowley, who is mentioned quite a lot in Hellblazer. Alistair Crowley was a real occultist. Mm. He was born in England in 1875. Um... You can look him up on Wikipedia if you're interested in it. Um, John ripping Nurgle's spine out was fun. And I thought I, it was a bit of a letdown to the Nurgle story, though. Well, and he does. She does say to him, Epiphany does say he's dead, and John says, oh, "Just because you kill demon doesn't mean you'll stay dead." Mm. Yeah, I'd actually go well with you that. On the whole, this was an excellent issue, and I really enjoyed it. But for. 20 years of Hellblazer lore. It was a bit of a down. A bit of a come down. Mm. Um, See, my problem is the art styles don't follow the traditional murky vertigo stylings, which always gets a thumbs up from me. It's actually clear and very well done. Milligan's story plays with established cliches of marriage stories. The bride getting cold feet, the groom getting cold feet, the stag do, the hen do, and even the idea that it won't happen or Epiphany won't make it through the issue. And then he subverts them in that it's John that doesn't make it through the issue. Yeah. Granted, he gets better. But <laughs> or it wasn't him all along. <laughs> or it wasn't him all along. The ending felt a bit Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. In that way that, you remember those episodes of Buffy where the writer wasn't really that interested in the supernatural demon stuff? They were much rather interested in the characters and the dialogue and the subtext. Yeah. But they had to throw the demon in because it's called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. And there was the feeling that it was the same with this. It works well. But like you say, the ending's a bit of a letdown. Yeah. But it wasn't. You know, it didn't suck by any stretch of the imagination. Um, You've done a great job of picking issues from different writers that contain subplots or threads that popped up throughout, giving it a sense of continuity of the series, despite the different writers. But they were just also a part of the tapestry of Constantine's life, mm. rather than continuity millstones around the neck that the reader struggled to understand. If nothing else, you've made me want to renew my friendship with Mr. Constantine. Mm-hmm. At least at the hands of Jason Aaron and Peter Milligan. Peter Milligan's run is great. Uh, especially now it's coming to an end, so you have got a full thing you can read though. Yeah. So this was, was really good. You know what my favourite thing about this entire issue though? What? Okay, well not only does it have its importance that John's finally getting married and all that, but the single best thing about this is John gets married in his trench coat. He does. <laughs> he has to be convinced to do it in a church though. Yeah. Which I thought was quite funny. And uh and typically John. I suppose. Um, well, that's the end of Farewell Hellblazer. Or is it? Or is it? Mm. Did you enjoy that? I did, actually. I did, actually, as well. Issue 200 was the only one that I considered, oh, that was a bit cack. Yeah. Um, I didn't have fond memories of the Jamie Delano stuff, but found myself enjoying them on reread. 
The Neil Gaiman issue, I think I've said before, I found was a bit right on. How many right on boxes can we tick? Gay and lesbian character, tick. Mention of AIDS, tick. Mention of contraception, tick. Mention of a, a social issue, tick. But I enjoyed reading it. Yeah. The Garth Ennis issues were fantastic mm-hmm. because Garth Ennis' is, is run on Hellblazer is fantastic. Yeah. Um, surprisingly the Jason Aaron Peter Milligan ones were brilliant as well yeah so you did an excellent job though excellent shout out to my wonderful co-host who again did the writing and producing and picked some excellent comics for me to read thank you good job young Michael Mm -hmm. next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics it's the much ballyhooed happy birthday Superman We'll be kicking off our celebration of the big guy's 75th birthday with a quartet of issues from the golden age of comics. Superman, Champion of the Oppressed from Superman issue number one. The Blakely Mine Disaster from Action Comics number three. Europe at War from Action Comics number 23. And Superman Matinee Idol, or Matinee Idol, sorry, from Superman number 17. We hope that you're going to enjoy us for this because I've been putting a lot of effort into this one. You have. I have indeed. Mm. Research material stacked high, wasn't no. it? Yeah. <laughs> I've been complained at by the family for dominating the table in the dining room with books about Superman. And Angela is now fed up of watching Superman the movie and documentaries about Superman and Lois and Clark. Mm-hmm. And I rewatched the George Reeves episode, the very first episode with the origin in. Yeah. Where the Sarah and Eben Kent rather than Jonathan and Martha Sarah Kent. Sarah Yep, Sarah and Eben in that one so I've, I've done a lot of research for this I'll be mentioning my sources as we go along so any mistakes are all purely mine and his <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see you next week for our seven week extravaganza longer than night's quest long, no right. not long, no, longer than no not longer than no you're right yeah it's not longer than night's quest night's quest was eight weeks right so we've still not beaten that <laughs> Although I could do Superman for much longer if you want. Yeah. But I'm not going to. We're going to stick with the idea that every week we're going to do stories from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then a big finale, mm-hmm. which is all planned out. Notes are already done for four of them. That's how far ahead of the game I'm being. So we'll see you next week. I hope you enjoy that, uh, and I hope you'll be back. And if you want to drop us a line, feel free. Hey, kids, comics at virginmedia.com. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. 
If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they've discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you're so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. I sang it while my sorrows You told me all your joys Whatever happened to that old song To all those little girls and boys Thank you.